The Joe Rogan Experience. Train by day, Joe Rogan Podcast by night, all day. Over up. Hey, what's happening? How are Here you? Here we are, finally. Yeah. I'm excited to talk to you, man. You've had a wild ride for life. I have. <laughs> you really have. But I love people like you. I always my hands on the wheel. Yeah. No, you, well, you, obviously, you're here, right? Yes, sir. Yeah. And what a fucking wild, wild ride, though. I mean, everything. Your religious background, the, 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 being the first Metallica. I mean, it's pretty wild. What is it like, like, looking back? Does it seem, I mean, being a part of Megadeth and being a part of Metallica, like you're rock loyalty. Thanks. Thanks. I, uh, I you know, uh, first off, thanks for having me on. To My pleasure. It's, uh, it's, uh, uh, I'm stoked to be here. And uh, um, yeah, what, what's, what was it like? Uh, there's, there's so much to explain. Uh, of course, you, you know, being in showbiz, that there's different degrees of, of, you know, how excited you can get. And then you have one of those days and it's like, yeah, shit, it'll never be better than this. And then, you know, keep working hard. You keep applying yourself, associating with the right people. And uh, there's always going to be another level. My sensei uh, out in California, I used to train with Sensei Benny the Jet Yukides. And he was one say, of the all time greats. Yeah, yeah. That's my, I first, love that my guy. first black belt came from uh, Sensei Benny. And, that's amazing. And, uh, Were you at the Jet Center? Yeah, I was. In, uh, I'm number 17. So when I went to California, that's one of the first places I went to. I wanted to go to the comedy store and I mm. wanted to go to the Jet Center. Yeah, that got ruined in the earthquake. Yeah, of, of I was Northridge. there right afterwards. Oh, that's And bummer. when the rains came, the, yeah. the roof was all fucked up and they wound up having. Having to close the place down. Yeah, yeah. And then he had a place in North Hollywood for a while that I yeah, went to. Yeah, that was over by Vaughn. So I went there a couple times, but yeah. just didn't have the magic that the Jet Center no, did. You it know, didn't, right? kn- knowing uh, Bill Superfoot Wallace and Chuck Norris and all these greats had gone in and there. Blinky Rodriguez. And Blinky, Blinky. Blinky. I was, was really close beast. with Blinky. My wife uh, had trained with uh, Sensei Lily Rodriguez too before her unfortunate passing. I met her as well. Yeah, she was a badass. She beat. When did she pass? Uh, she uh, it's probably in the last ten years or so. I remember that uh, there was a lot of talk about her and June Castro at the time about you know who was the toughest, and she had fought June and June broke her leg, and and I can't remember how long she had continued to to uh, defend herself before she stopped. I think actually someone stopped it, but yeah, just amazing stories of resilience in that family. Really gave me a lot of encouragement and and uh, a lot of the drive to get out of the mess that I was uh, no doubt going to end up in if I hadn't, you know, fallen in love with the art. Found something like that. And yeah. what a great place to do it too because that that family, those people, Benny, Blinky, Lily, all those people that were attached to them too, that's a giant part of the history of kickboxing yes. in America. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were the elite of the elite. Benny was the baddest motherfucker ever during yeah. his time. Yes, he was. People don't realize, you go back and watch those tapes of Benny Arquides when he was young, like it's kind of like lost on some people for some reason, but it's, he was it's, phenomenal. It's, yeah, it's sad to watch how he dismantles people. There was a fight that I, I have, one of his tapes, I have all of his tapes, but uh, one in particular that I really like, he'd gone to Thailand and he was uh, fighting a guy, he said, look, I'll come to your country, fight your rules, your champ, your ring, whatever. And he went there, and you know, uh, all I can compare it to is in Star Wars, where they have those guys with the big hat, you know, the big forehead, the Klingons, whatever they are. Yeah. Um, Sensei Benny had kicked him uh, in, across his forehead with a shin kick so many times that his whole entire forehead just uh, had this 
contusion on it looked like like almost like a Darth Vader helmet you know after he'd had his head and it was in a way I guess you know maybe he was taunting him a little bit you know just uh, um, you know slapping him around on 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 TV because it was in front of uh, the the whole nation had shown up there to to watch this fight but uh, I, I guess he's had a lot of fights like that I heard that the the story about Frank Dukes was actually about Cincy Benny too did you ever hear about that one no, well, the Frank Dukes thing was kind of a hoax, right? Like he had claimed to be a part of some yeah. kumite that was proven to not really happen. Is that what? What was yes. the exact story? Okay, so because uh, I know they tried to make it into blood sport, right? They did, uh, yeah. but it's not true. But so, they tried to. Well, from, from what I know, this is this is what I know, uh, what I was told. So I don't know how accurate this is, but I heard from the people who participated in this whole thing. So, what had happened was uh, the movie with Jean Claude Van Damme and um, Frank Dukes. Uh, I was told that uh, Frank Dukes wasn't the guy who had actually uh, been the fighter in that, and that it was Benny the Jet Yukidas, and that when. Um, he had come home or something. He had his school in the Los Angeles area, Simi Valley area, somewhere like that. And uh, uh, Sensei Ruben, uh, Benny's older brother, and uh, Sensei uh, Arnold, his other brother. He had nine brothers and sisters. They were all black belts. Oh. And um, his mother was a professional wrestler and his dad was a professional boxer or vice versa. One was a boxer, one was a wrestler. What a terrible house to break into. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, Sensei he, he, uh, Benny used to tell me that when the kids would get in fights, the dad would say, go outside and fight barefoot in the stickers. And, and I thought, wow, that's <laughs> talk about getting that's toughened up. Yeah, because he used to tell me he would get his teeth worked on without any uh, Novocaine. And, and I was saying cleaning, right? No, I, they, they just yeah, and and, and so I was, I could couldn't do that. I I drive past dentist offices and I get freaked out. I know Benny participated in some kind of a mixed rules kumite type situation, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think it was in Hawaii. See if you can find that out, Jamie. The the story with Duke, so when when Ar Arnold and and uh, Ruben um, they had gone to Frank Duke's school. And they, this is what the family told me. They walked in, they locked the door. There was a student or two there. They told them, you need to leave. The students left. And they went in the back office of Frank's dojo. And this is what I heard, you know, and, and, I, and I'm not saying this to draw Frank Dukes out of uh, retirement or anything like that. You know, that this, this is what I heard, um, is that uh, when Arth, uh, Arnold and Ruben went in there, he, he freaked out and kind of lost control of himself and, and uh, that they had words and, and fortunately there were no fisticuffs, but that was the story. And uh, so when I watched it again, it was really neat to think that, you know, Jean-Claude Van Damme was portraying Cincy Banny instead of this other person. So I'm confused about the story. So Benny and someone else went to visit Frank Ruben, Ruben and Arnold went there because it was Benny's story. Oh, I see. So Ruben and Arnold went there to confront Frank Dukes because Frank Dukes had ripped off Benny's story. Right. That's so the, and what this I was is, told. The, and this is Benny's story that was about the Kumite that yes. we'd... But it wasn't a real story. I mean, did he really rip off the story? It's just he kind of made something up, right? Well, I'm not saying he ripped anything off. I, what I'm saying is that's what I was told the story was about, mm. that, that it wasn't Frank, it was Benny. I knew a dude who faked a Kumite. It's a crazy story. He, uh, he told his friend to drive him to the woods... And he said, and I come back in a day. I'm, I'm fighting in like a secret karate tournament. Mm. So he goes off in the room and he brings a bag with him, mm. right? Like a duffel bag. Mm. 
And then the guy comes back a day later to pick him up, and no duffel bag, but now he's got a trophy the same size as the bag. Oh, wow. <laughs> he, said, he said he won a karate tournament in the woods. Did he take the trophy out there and bring it back? <laughs> yes. What a dog. But it's, it's hilarious. how but People don't understand, I think, that before the UFC, yeah. before we got to watch mixed martial arts, meaning like an Aikido guy could fight a judo guy, or a wrestler guy could fight a karate guy, before we saw that, we didn't know what was the best art. Mm. We didn't know. And mm. th there was a lot of like speculation, but very few mixed rules engagements. Like there was Judo Jean LaBelle fought a boxer once and he made mm. the boxer wear a gi mm. and he just took him to the ground, strangled him unconscious. Mm. Ali. Yeah, there's yeah. Ali and Inoki. They mm. had that weird thing where Inoki's on his back and he's kicking him in the legs. Mm. But there was very few of those. So we, you could have room for like some person who pretends that they fought overseas. There's no internet back then. Mm -hmm. Some person who fought and you know beat the world in some sort of a you know to the death tournament. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of those kooks out there. Yeah. So yeah. that story, I mean, that's not even really based on Frank Dukes's version of what he says happened. Mm -hmm. It's just kind of Hollywood corny, right? Yeah, well that, that happens with a lot of those movies. Yeah, so. obviously. But just when it what, comes to reality, though, like Benny Arquidez was, uh, he was a, a real important force in the early days of kickboxing, yeah, particularly in America. The, my, one of my favorite um, uh, martial art choreography uh, uh, things that he'd ever done was with Roadhouse. Uh, you know, I had oh, he choreographed that? Yeah, I skydived with Patrick Swayze, and I knew that he was uh, Dalton in Roadhouse. And there was a couple moves at the very end, you know, when he was attacking that other guy, the bad guy, and he, he does this cross punch on the inside of his knees and blows out the guy's knees. And I, and I thought, ah, I just learned that last week. You know, So <laughs> it was really cool to see this stuff applied in this uh, almost, you know, like fight to the death kumite. Yeah. Uh, so, I, I mean, I don't know how many people know what kumite means. Uh, so for people that don't know what that means, it's a death match. So um, I know there's going to be some people out there that aren't going to know exactly what that means. I think the word the red kumite is, just means sparring. Yeah, it's, it just means fighting. The uh, the red sash. Uh, oh God, what is that called? When they do, what is the, what is the word when they go? Uh, two guys go, one comes back. That's a death match. Do they have those, or have they had those? I'm sure people have had them. Yeah, of course. They I'm do. sure over the of course, course of history, people have decided to. To karate fight to the death? Absolutely. I'm sure they did. Yeah. They but I to. think the word kumite doesn't mean that, though. I think it just means fighting. Yeah. Right? Well, that's why I was asking you. Uh, yeah. So. yeah, I'm pretty sure it does. You know, I, that's a Japanese word. I came from a Korean martial art background originally. So I don't know that much about it. Kumite, martial arts, freestyle fighting. So sparring. Literally sparring. Okay. What does deathmatch say? <laughs> is there a, a, a Japanese term for karate deathmatch? Yeah. I'd heard of That'd be a good time. name for yeah. a band. Yeah. Karate deathmatch. What year? Get that website. What did what year did you start martial arts? I was 12. Wow. I was, 12. I was uh, So you you have a black belt in karate, right? Mm -hmm. You have a black belt in what else? In taekwondo. In taekwondo and, and you have a purple belt in jiu-jitsu. Yeah. That's that's a very impressive resume. That's really amazing. Yeah, I've, I've managed to be really smart and stay out of a lot of trouble, too. And, and, and that was one of the things that Cincy Benny told me when, when we first started working together was, you know, a guy's coming down the street and he doesn't look like he's your friend, change sides of the street. If he changes sides of the street, turn around. You know, I, I, I don't go looking for trouble anymore. There was a period in my life where, you know, that kind of... Uh, 
people, uh, those kind of people, and that kind of stuff was, you know, go out, get drunk, cause some problems. We lived down in Huntington Beach, you know, all the surf kids would go down there and fight people from another neighborhood or another school or something stupid like that. But A lot of tough guys came from Huntington Beach. That's where I, Tank Abbott came from. That's where uh, Tito Ortiz came from Huntington Beach. Yeah. A lot of guys. Yeah. There was a guy there when I went to high school there named Polo. He was uh, uh, one of a bunch of Samoans that were down there. And I remember I was at a kegger party one night, and, and some guy hit him right in the face with a crowbar, and he did not move. <laughs> and I thought, oh, my God. It was one of those you know, those hexagonal crowbars, you know? Oh, Jesus It, it wasn't like a, like a tire iron where you just turn the knobs, and he just whacked him. And I thought, someone's going to die. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah, some people can take inhumane punishment. It's a, a superhuman. Like, I've, I've seen Mark Hunt in the early days. Like, Crow Cop kicked him in the head. Crow Cop kicks people that just go unconscious. Crow Cop kicked him in the head. He just sort of fell down, got right back up. And everybody was like, how? Hey, did you ever know a guy named Mark Carr? Mark Carr. They used to call him the specimen. Mark Kerr. Kerr. Yeah, yeah, Kerr. yeah. Kerr, yeah. Kerr, yeah. Kerr, yes. Kerr, yeah. Yes, yeah. Yeah, he was uh, in the early days of the UFC. Yeah, I was at some a couple of his fights, definitely one where he tapped a guy by shoving his chin into his eye socket. Oy. He got on top of the guy, and I think it was uh, Ron Waterson, Ron Waterman, Ron Waterman. So Mark Kerr gets on top of him, and he's like grabbing the back of his head, and he shoves his chin into the guy's eye socket. Oy. And the dude taps. I was like that. That's effective. He's a big guy. <laughs> he I was re- huge. Yeah, I, I remember we hung out for a little while, and and uh, he was staying at my pad in in Scottsdale. Oh, really? Yeah, there was a time uh, he was uh, getting himself uh, straightened out, and and you know um, he knew that I had a history and got. Was my- this after the Smashing Machine documentary? I think so. Did you ever see it? I, I heard of it. The documentary. And I might have seen some of it. It's wild. Yeah, it's wild. It's, it it. <laughs> What they were trying to do, and like oftentimes in documentaries, like they'll start following someone with a very specific objective, but then the whole world changes. Yeah. Like, and this that's this one is one of those. Mm-hmm. They were following him because he was this like unstoppable force that was fighting in pride mm-hmm. that looked like a superhero. Mm-hmm. And, and this he, is the one where it shows all the shooting up and everything. Exactly. Yeah. And then during that time period, they got to realize, oh my god, this guy's addicted to painkillers, like uh-huh. hardcore. Like, he's really falling apart, and he falls apart during the filming of the documentary. Yeah. It's like this, this sad, th- yeah, hellscape of addiction. And they didn't intend to capture that. They intended mm-hmm. just to capture him dominating, mm-hmm. what like he was. But he was a freak. That guy yeah. was so fucking big. When you would see him, pull up a picture of Mark Kerr in his prime. He was one of the most preposterous guys. And he was like a very, very, there he is. Look at that. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't even look like a human. So, so let me tell you this thing, Mark. See that picture on the right? Let's look at that one right there. We screaming. So jacked. He, my wife came out one night. It was around Halloween. He was staying with us, and she heard this noise in our kitchen. And there was this pantry that had a bunch of shelves, and all of the Halloween candy had been stuck up on the top shelf, so our kids wouldn't eat it. So she comes in the kitchen, and she sees that guy inside of the pantry on the top shelf pulling down the candy because because <laughs> <laughs> he wanted candy. That's hilarious. Yeah, I don't know that I. Wouldn't have Look at the size of him. Candy. He was so fucking big and so yeah. fast too. He's a good guy. He, he was. I, I, I hope he's still alive. I don't know uh, what's going on with him, but I had heard he cleaned himself up. That's and good. He, I think he was selling cars for a while. That's good. 
But uh, buy this or else. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he was. He looks different. You know, he lost all that muscle mass. He's a much more normal looking big guy now. He was a big yeah. guy. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, so how did we get on the subject of Mark Kerr? Just talking. Yeah, I'm just trying to remember. I had a point. Uh, but he's um, specimen. That movie. that early, those early years, like everyone was trying to figure out like what to do. It was interesting to see like the wrestlers come in and just start smashing people, and then kickboxers started coming in and kicking the wrestlers' legs, and then other people started figuring out how to tap people better in no gi. It's like mm. a, it's a wild uh, sort of a journey from the early days of martial arts to where we are today. Yeah. I, don't, I don't think there's the any development th of it all. What is this? Is that oh, this is Benny the Jet. No rules concept with the greatest fighters on earth. Karate meets kung fu. Oh wow! So this is May sixteenth. What in the L.A. Sports Arena? This what would have year been was this? Nineteen seventy-five. This is probably the third wow. event the World Series of Martial Arts put on. I think. Winner takes all. Masters from Hawaii, Japan, the South Pacific, Thailand, and the U.S. in full contact combat, going for the knockout. Wow! Seven bucks for tickets. Twelve Guy. bucks. For scene. ringside. <laughs> oh, man, imagine a time machine going back to watch that. That would that, yeah. be pretty interesting. I watched one of his fights, the very last one, and, and I was such a, a bad spectator. I was, I was yelling because the guy that he was fighting, I can't remember his name, was Tanaka, I think, or something like that. But, you know, there, there were certain rules for that. And, you know, they, they were putting his head under the towel in the corner, and I heard that that was not uh, legal. And, uh, that they were what? What were they doing? Well, somebody said something to me that the guy was uh, had his head under the towel and that they were doing something with him um, in the corner during the fight. I, I don't know exactly what. Oh, they look! Were. Was this a fight with takedowns or did he just clinch? No, this it, is just a, this what, what we're looking at right here. Who is this? Benny versus Bill Henderson. Bill Henderson. And this is what? What year was this? I think this is from that fight that I just had the uh, advertisement for. From, oh, uh, really? This LA is the... LA 1975. So yeah. he took him down, th so that was legal in this fight. So this isn't yeah. just a kid. They're, and yeah, they're wearing those karate loses. gloves. Oh, shit. Uh, it's really unfortunate that more people in America didn't get to see uh, Benny fight when that whole PKA karate thing was going on. Yeah. You know, because like people got to see a lot of fights where it was really just kind of like sloppy boxing with occasional kicks. And occasionally they'd have a guy who was like really good that was like a full, like Jerry Trimble. Remember mm -hmm. that guy? No. He's a bad motherfucker. Threw 360 roundhouse kicks, wheel kicks, and everything like that. Mm -hmm. and, he, and then, of course, Rick Rufus. And Rick Rufus was like the big American star mm -hmm. who could fight, you know, that style and knock a lot of people out with kicks. Mm -hmm. Like Rick Rufus was in his prime, he was phenomenal. And he was like probably the best of the Americans in terms of like the representation of like a full spectrum of martial arts techniques. Like he could, uh, he fought tie fights. He, he later learned how to fight with leg kicks. This is like one of the most famous kickboxing matches ever was his first fight against a tie because he didn't know how to fight with leg kicks. And mm -hmm. so he was fighting with the long pants on. He gets his legs kicked out. And that like led to this big evolution between him and his brother Duke, where they really figured out like, oh, this is the right way. Mm -hmm. you, like you have to use leg kicks. Like leg kicks are a giant part mm -hmm. of martial arts that the karate people and the taekwondo people didn't get. Mm -hmm. Like the Thais figured that out more than anybody. And the karate people had some of it that they used in Kyokushin and some other, but it wasn't in terms of like its expression in kickboxing. Nobody had figured out how to do it like the Thais. 
when you first started training, you said you were 12 years old, and mm-hmm. what was the original martial art? It was uh, Shorin Ryu, and uh, my brother-in-law was the chief of police in Stanton, California, and my dad and my mom got divorced when I was four, so consequently I grew up with male role models, surrogate uh parenting and, and stuff like that. And and uh, right across the street from the police center was a YMCA that was uh, having free karate lessons. And, and so I went and uh, that started it all. And, and um, almost 61. So shoot, that's, you know, almost 50 years. So Wow. But it hasn't been consistent the whole time because moving out to Arizona when I left Cincy Benny, it was, uh, it was really uh, hard to find someone else to train with because you know you get spoiled and and the whole MMA thing hadn't hit right so yeah yeah now that it's hit it's like there's places to train all over the country yeah do you still watch the UFC I, I do sometimes when I have the time I, 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 I love watching matches if I get the time especially now that you know uh, going from practicing uh karate mainly to you know doing grappling and ground fighting and stuff that was part of the yukido Khan style was there was a little bit of jujitsu in it but nothing like the extent that i've been studying now and you've been doing it now for how many years jujitsu i think maybe three four years that's awesome yeah i love when people just pick stuff up new yeah you know it's like it's such an important part of life and it's so, it's so rewarding to right. learn some new thing, to get into some new thing, especially some new thing like jujitsu that's actually like physically good for you. Yeah. The other thing too is uh, over the years having the discipline with the arts, I'm not chasing my my chodan. I want to, um, uh, you know, when you asked me how long it was, I actually had to think well, how long has it been, you know, because it's it's a way of life for me, and and you know the rank comes, and um, you just show up and and be a good student. What was the first year you picked up a guitar? I was 13. Oh, so right around the t- same time you yeah. first started doing martial arts. Yeah. And what, like, back then, what was the music that you were into? Like, what did you listen to? When I was 13, I had a very limited musical uh, um, library. My sisters listened to a lot of Motown. My brother-in-laws listened to a lot of the uh, uh, pop stuff that was in America at the time, Frankie Valli and, and, you know, Paul Revere and the Raiders and stuff. This is when I'm just a little kid. So right. it's, you know, Gary Puck and the Union Gap, and, you know, uh, all those old bands. Um, and it wasn't until my youngest sister, who's uh, a little bit older than me, started dating um, that I got exposed to a little bit harder music. And, and that started with a little bit of uh, Deep Purple, and then uh, Mata Hoople, and a little bit of some David Bowie, and then we discovered Kiss and, and Ted Nugent, and uh, <laughs> the other one was uh, Kiss, Ted Nugent, who was the other band back then? Led Zeppelin, those three. Yeah, that made all the difference in the world for me with the guitar. And so when you first started getting into the guitar, were you taking any <laughs> lessons, or were you trying to learn on your own? I'm self-taught, so oh. I... I um, you know, I tried to do the lesson thing. Uh, I even tried it again, you know, a few years ago. And, and the guy that was trying to explain it to me, uh, he made it more confusing for me than, <laughs> than you know, going into it. So, I mean, for some people, lessons are, are I think for most people, lessons are important. But if you've, if you've already figured out how to do it, don't unfigure it. You know? Yeah, right. Like it w- I would imagine like applying a system, like a, the, the system of notes to something that you've sort of intuitively picked up. Mm-hmm. Like did you just, you figured out what sounds it makes while you're moving your fingers in different positions and then you mimic the sounds that you heard in albums? Like how does one how to 
learn how to teach themselves how to play I, the guitar. I started with an acoustic and was plunking around a little bit on that. My sister played piano, and Joe, she was so awful. <laughs> it, it, I mean, uh, the music coming out of our apartment sounded like two cats having sex. And, and I, all I know is that uh, there was an acoustic guitar there, and I thought, I, I need to make some noise to drown out what she's doing. And uh, so that started it. And she liked Cat Stevens. Uh, we had a music book of the anthology for the Beatles, which is another huge band for me with my songwriting because of the weird chord structures. They have moving bass note that uh, you know, the chord will stay, stay the same and the bass will move, or vice versa. The bass will stay the same and the chord will move. So not a lot of movement happens, but it seems like a lot's going on in the songs. And then besides uh, Elton John Bowie was Cat uh, Stevens. I don't know if I said that or not, but he was a huge pop success back in the day you know um, yeah part of that whole hippie movement and, and uh he actually went back to afghanistan and and changed his name back to yusuf islam i think yeah and um boy he had a beautiful voice that's one thing for sure i think he tours now but i'm not sure if he tours as <laughs> cat stevens or yusuf islam i feel like he was not in america though see if he does he tour in america i think there was like an issue with the salman rushdie comments I think there was something going on when you remember when Salman Rushdie when they yeah. before he got attacked yeah. recently like when they first instituted a fatwa on him I think uh, he supported it or something there was like some real issue. He supported the fatwa or yeah. the, the chronicles. Yeah, yeah, which was I'm pretty sure. Google that. I don't want to have to edit that out. No upcoming events. Oh, uh, did he support the uh, the fatwa on Salman Rushdie? I'm not what was that pretty called? sure the Satanic I'm not Chronicles making, or something. Yeah, the Satanic Verses. Verses, yeah. Yeah, and I, I guess people interpreted it as uh, being yeah. about Muhammad. Yeah. He did. Mm-hmm. What did he? What did he say? Uh, it just says it endorsed the, made statements endorsing it. Yeah, his statements generated. Yeah, which is crazy to say. If guy's a hippie from. Cat in the yeah. cradle in the Peace trains. No, that's from somebody else. Oh, who's that? Yeah, uh, who knows? Who cares? That's not him. Um, he's the peace train yeah, guy. Yeah, that's right. Peace train. What else do you Yeah. Have? The T for the Tillerman steak for the sun. That's maybe what you're thinking of. He's got a great voice. It's like yeah. very soothing and yeah. loving. <laughs> Meanwhile, he supports killing yeah. Salman Rushdie for writing die, a book. Die, die, die. I think when people say they support killing, they, I don't think they really understand what they're saying sometimes. I think they're, they're saying it, but if you were there while it was happening, while the guy was getting killed, you'd be fucking horrified. Yeah. Like you, what you are saying is that horrific violence is justified for someone writing something down. Yeah. That's crazy talk. Yeah, it's crazy. Unless you don't know what horrific violence is, you're you're talking about it like it's some ethereal, non-existing, non-real thing because you haven't experienced it in real life. Hmm. <sighs> well, maybe he did experience a lot of it in the peace movement in the '60s and '70s because I, maybe you know, the, he he probably got sick with America and and you know going back to Afghanistan and changing your name and probably had something that spurred that on. It probably wasn't just a, a knee-jerk reaction and. Yeah, I know that the music business is way, way different than it is now. It's so different. I don't know if those two things are related, but yeah, I'm sure the peace movement, it probably saw a lot of wild shit. Well, he's a musician, right? Yeah. And, and the music business is what you survive in. And the, for example, Elvis, you know, the way that he his life ended and, and uh, you know, the way that the music business was back then, it, it was, you know, throw, throw drugs at the problem, throw sex and money at the problem. And um, I don't know that uh, had he had 
modern management or even if he was with, you know, somebody who, um, you know, like a handler, mm-hmm. you know, that would say, hey, it's probably not a good idea for you to, to say that. You know, nowadays we have people who um, are, are their, their sole jobs are to help keep us from, you know, stepping on it, you know. Right. <laughs> so, and uh, I've got people around me, they used to be real busy with me, but, you know, fortunately, growing up, I've, I've learned a lot of stuff that, you know, you can and can't say, so. Well, specifically, I mean, in this day and age with social media, it's so easy for someone to just tweet something really ridiculous without someone <laughs> saying, hey, don't fucking say that. You're mm. on Adderall. Sit down. <laughs> don't write that down. Don't say that. You know, it's just, back then, do you think that the the drug and alcohol thing is the same today in music or do you think it's less do you think it's just not promoted by the, i mean how, what do you think the difference is between the influence of drugs and alcohol in the early days versus now well i think i think in the early days of the music business uh, first off the drugs weren't as strong and um you know they didn't have uh like for example something as simple as or you know the the marijuana that that I used to smoke when I was a kid versus what's uh, being manufactured and grown nowadays is way different. And uh, I think that the stigmatism for people about smoking is uh, less. And I I think that um, there's a lot of... uh, other things that people use out on the road to, to cope with things that could be dealt with with you know good management, good good support system, um, and and most importantly, you know having somebody who's going to tell you the truth. You know, I'm, I'm a grown up, I'm a big boy, so when when I, I have stuff happen in my career, and um, it could have been avoided, or or somebody didn't tell me, and I find out later, that sucks. You yeah, know? and and for a lot of people, when that stuff happens, they respond in a negative way with um, you know. Uh, either self-sabotage or, or, you know, they medicate themselves. And, and I remember back when I was drinking, um, you know, I, I, there was a thing someone said at one of those meetings, and I thought it was kind of clever. The guy said, you know, I drank when my team won, and I drank when my team lost, and I drank when my team played, and I drank when my team was in the off season. <laughs> and I thought, all right, well, that's, that's about me. Uh, what team were we not rooting for anymore? So, But, you know, there's, there's so many reasons why people um, make it or don't make it in the music business. And I think, much like yourself, uh, you know, in our getting to know each other earlier this afternoon um you know you you have to take care of yourself you really really do and and there's so many things in in the music industry that that um you know the the history the uh the the people that you're working with you know a lot of people don't want to say anything bad about somebody but i mean imagine how much better things would be if somebody really said you know what that he's a nice guy but he stole from us or you know this guy is he he's good at this but he's terrible at that you know everybody's so afraid to offend anybody with with uh, stuff like that but yet you know in other areas of life offending people doesn't mean shit you know so we we've had sometimes we've had some people on our on our uh, crew and um uh, tours that we've been on the last tour we were on not my band but another band their bus drove right up to the canadian border and the driver got out and left them all sitting there <laughs> 
So Why? yeah, it's a music business. Why did he do Because he had a DUI or something like that, and you can't get up into Canada. So, oh my God, that's know, hilarious. It's so convoluted, all this stuff. But see, like back in the day, you know, uh, back in the 60s or 70s, what I was talking about, you know, different eras, different messes, different managers. You know, managers used to manage the mess. They don't manage the mess anymore. They don't want to tolerate that shit because there's always somebody around the corner that's ready to work harder than you. Mm. It's like that motivational thing that Arnold said a long time. Somebody's out there getting stronger, running farther you know all that stuff i love those motivational mm -hmm. tapes yeah well someone is out there doing it and if you do fuck up and you want to just take xanax all day and, and and do coke and you don't write new music someone's going to come along they are and unfortunately everybody that but that's isn't that a part of like the whole rock and roll mystique Part of the whole mystique was the guy who did crazy drugs, was kind of half out of it, but would go on stage and be brilliant. Sometimes, you know, that's yeah. and Keith Moon, you know, yeah, that's that worked for Keith. But uh, I think that's, uh, you know, a player like Keith is so all over the place. You know, he doesn't have a song with a pattern, so right. it's just go out there and, and just hit everything. Um, there, I, I know of a lot of musicians that, that um, will drink when they play. I, I know a lot that don't. Um, I don't know very many anymore that do drugs. Uh, that's just something that's been kind of, kind of phased out. Yeah, just yeah, because the you know, impact it has in your body. Well, not only that, but the the things that it makes the people do and and the kind of people that are around that. I think that you know, mm -hmm. like again, like I was saying, herb is less of a stigmatism, so people are a little bit more open with that. But you know, as far as coming backstage and it's smelling like you know, somebody's back there burning chemicals or something like that, or, you know, people falling out in the hallway from heroin or, or you know, tweaking around on meth or coke or something. You know, we, we try and, and uh, associate with people that are like-minded with us, you know, the people that are uh, about their careers and that really are uh, into taking care of themselves. Um, two of the guys in Five Finger Death Punch do jujitsu. They have a, a sensei out with them. We all are doing jujitsu. Um, when we were out with Trivium, the singer for that band does Jesus. So we try and hang out with bands that are really uh, health-centric, you know, that right. are really, really looking into it, not just from here down, but here up too. When you, when you were a kid and you first were hearing about bands and getting into bands, was that, was that always uh, a narrative? Was that something that was discussed a lot, that like a lot of bands did drugs? I don't think it was because, it, it, you know, it, it wasn't something we were preoccupied with. We were, at the time when I first started playing around by myself um, with other little, you know, small time uh, outfits and stuff like that, it, it never was really drugs per se. It would be like maybe get a six pack of air and, you know, maybe smoke a joint or something. But it wasn't until Megadeth actually um, got going and we met uh, Gar and... Uh, some of the people in that circle where we, you know, started to experiment with other stuff, and and uh, we had a manager at the time who who um, was very very bad off, and um, he would try to always keep us um, loaded, and we ended up having to fire the guy because it was for our own health and <laughs> our own safety. I mean, you know, if I was a cheap bastard and didn't have any money, I would say this is great, you got it for free. But you know, it, it, the thing was, is um, you know, the guy was keeping several members of the band sick yeah there's guys that do that <clears throat> there are guys that do that and there's guys that that'll do that just to sort of corral you and keep control of you mm. i've seen managers do that where well, the brian wilson story was a great story too 
what what happened with Brian Wilson? The, uh, the movie that he had about the doctor that he had. He had some psychiatrists that kept him all whacked out. I watched the movie uh, that Paul Paul Garganimus or whatever his name is, the one guy from uh, Billions, was uh, the doctor. And I can't remember who played Brian Wilson, but it was a great movie. What is it called? Uh, it was the Brian Wilson story, I guess. Oh, okay. I don't know. I, I haven't seen that one yet. But John I'll Cusack it played though. it, and I know John Cusack's uh, practitioner too. He he'd, he'd uh, trained over with Cincy Benny at the Jet Center too. Yeah, I remember he, in, he used him in one of his movies. There it is, Love and Mercy. That's it. Giamatti, Paul That's Giamatti. Yeah. Oh yeah, the guy from the Howard Stern movie too. Now that guy's awesome. Yeah, that um. <clears throat> That's that whole thing with uh, psychiatrists or doctors or, uh, you know, whether it's a manager or someone that you have that can get you drugs and that keeps you on them. That's a long standing story. That's been going on a long time, especially like with really talented people. A lot of times that that person that they can benefit financially from controlling them. Mm. So they get a hold of that. They, they go, look, I'm just going to babysit you, keep you on drugs. And then suck money out of you. Mm. And and then there's a lot of those guys that wind up keeping these incompetent managers for years longer than they should mm. because the guy gets them drugs, too. Right. Because the guy gets them girls. He gets them drugs. He sets up parties. He does all the stuff that doesn't help the band mm. and doesn't help their music. Right. But it helps keep him around. In the picture. Yeah. yeah. There's, there's, those guys are real. I've met those guys in comedy, too. They exist. They exist. And it's... um. You know, it's always been a long, long standing story in comedy. You know, with uh, Sam Kinison was into coke, and Richard Pryor famously had a problem. But you don't, you only hear about those kind of people when they make the news. You know, when something happened. So I was always mm -hmm. wondering, like back in your day when you first started, like was that a trope? Was that something that was discussed a lot with rock stars? It's not the in the news. <laughs> no, the drugs, the drug thing, because it seems like so many guys from from your era. We're doing drugs. Yeah, they were. Uh, well, let, let's. I'll give you a scenario. When we got signed to Capitol, we went up into the tower. We went into one of the little rooms there, and the guy slid his desk open, and there were lines everywhere. So, <laughs> yeah, they gave us a box of Nike uh, shoes and all the blow you could eat. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. When I was a kid and when I worked at a comedy club, they offered me coke or money. Or a combination of both. You yeah. get paid in cash or coke. I was like, yeah. this is crazy. <laughs> I heard I heard about a band uh, with a front man that I really respected that wanted to be paid in crack. And, and <laughs> I just thought, you know what, I've lost all respect for you now. Well, maybe he knew he could get it at a good price and sell it on the road. Yeah, you never know. It's hard to get good crack. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of people that get like really lost on drugs. But that's why I'm always happy to speak with a, a person like yourself that's, you know, had your problems and put them aside mm -hmm. and bounced back yeah. and, you know, got healthy and, and, and is open about it. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that's it's so important for guys to hear. And also got to hear that it's a trap, too, that you can get you get sucked up into that trap. You can be a good person, a solid person who could, who's, a, you know, got confidence. You can accomplish things, but you can get still sucked in that trap. Yeah, you can. You can. Because it, it's it's like. People call it the big lie for a reason. Yeah, yeah, the big lie. 
They call the tour books the big lie, too. So speaking of touring. <laughs> the tour books? Yeah, when you're out on tour, you know, you get these these uh, itineraries. And, and um, I don't know when you travel if you uh, go for long stints at a time or not, or if, if uh, the UFC, when they travel, if they uh, go for long stints at a time. But when we go, we usually have uh, an itinerary, which is our, our little book, and we call it the Book of Lies because all <laughs> the information when the tour starts is all accurate. But by the time you get out and uh, to that first date, stuff starts changing. Oh, so you called that the big lie. Yeah. How, what was the longest time you've ever been on tour for? 72 weeks. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. That had to feel so bizarre when you came off the road after that much time. Yeah. It was back in the day when beds had quarter slots on them, too. So we, we were uh, sitting in these cheap hotels and watching WGN all day long. I, I sure learned a lot about the Atlanta Braves during that period, but, uh, yeah, it was rough. Quarter slots mean you put a quarter in to pay for the television? No, the bed would vibrate. Oh. Remember okay. those? That's like bygone past. Boy, I do remember that now that you bring it up. I don't think I ever experienced it personally, but I think I saw it in movies or something. Mm. Maybe one time when I was a kid they had that. I don't know when yeah. they got rid of that, but that was the most bizarre thing. Yeah. <laughs> we stayed at all those nice, fine establishments. <laughs> Is that supposed to enhance sex? You put a quarter in and well, you Well, if you're having vibrates? sex with a bed, I guess. Yeah, I don't understand why that would be a, a net benefit to have a vibrating bed, but people would pay for it. <laughs> I think everybody forgot about vibrating beds. You might have just revived an industry. There you go. Because <laughs> <laughs> I completely forgot. There it is. Magic fingers. Relaxation com service. For your comfort. This bed is equipped with... The same. What is it? The same magic fingers? Yeah. Why does it say the same? That doesn't make any sense. Maybe it was... Uh, well, it was... Uh, it looks like they copyrighted it, so it was like... Uh... Maybe people were just trying to steal their. But why was it say what? What a who? That's why it's out of business. They, yeah. they they're terrible at marketing. For your comfort, this bed is equipped with the same. The same magic fingers relaxation service. I think it's supposed to go all together. Right, but what? That's terrible. Like shitty font. Everything sucks. There, yeah, maybe there was it's a... it's it's formatted wrong. <laughs> it's, it's a whole sentence, but they put an image like, in the middle. Stupid. Falling seven grand a month off of a bed. What? Yeah. They can make seven grand a month just off each bed? You just got to put a vibrator <laughs> in between incredible. the pillows. Oh, my God. How ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Shitty hotels, all that jazz. And then coming back home after 72 weeks, is that what you said? 72 yeah. weeks in the road? Mm -hmm. How long were you home for? Uh, let's see. We went right in after that and did Peace Sales, but who's buying? And um, I think that record took a couple of uh, months to make. We weren't home for long. We weren't home for long. That's a hard life. Yeah. In the beginning, it was a lot of uh, traveling, and since I was homeless, you know, having a hotel to live in and and um, a venue basically to live in, um, that that was good for us. You know, David Ellison didn't have to uh, go home um, ever because he had uh, his family to fall back on. Um, I, I had no home to go to, so I had to make it last. And, and uh, so, so uh, to a degree, being in, in, on tour in the venues, in the hotel rooms, it was, it was a step up for me from being in a van. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess. That's, uh, it still had to be kind of, I mean, for every musician, the dream is to record and to make a living touring and to have fans. Mm -hmm. So when you started having that, I, I would imagine you would want to ride that 
as quickly and as long as possible. Like I, if I was in a band, I would imagine I would want to tour for 72 weeks in a row too. Like mm. it's, it's happening for you. Mm. What was that like when, I mean, you were successful pretty early on in your life. Like mm. how old were you when you were in your first band? Uh, Panic uh, was the band before Metallica, and and that was only for a short period of time. And I was 20 when I was in Metallica, so I probably started when I was around maybe 17, 18. But just think of that, just that statement. I was 20 when I was in Metallica. <laughs> I mean, that... Yeah, fuck you all. <laughs> that is crazy. I was 20 when I was in Metallica. That is a crazy statement, because if you just think about the average 20-year-old's life and that, and that this is, look at, look at you guys, little babies. Yeah. So cute. That's amazing. Does that freak you out when you look at that? No, it doesn't. Um, it kind of brings me a little bit of some sadness. Because of the way it went down with you guys? Oh, I don't care about that. Uh, because Cliff. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. When you um, left Metallica, and then when did you go right into Megadeth, or did you other? What did you do right after Metallica? I, I think in my mind I went right into Megadeth, but um, at the time I, I was still kind of trying to, you know, um, digest everything that took place. We well, were um, still only twenty. Yeah. Yeah. But the thing that bothered me the most was I had all my music and I left it behind and I said, don't use my music. And of course they did. Oh, really? Yeah. They used it on the first record, on the second record. There's parts of my music on a song on the third record. All the solos on the first record are mine, except that they're just performed by Kirk and close, but not the same. You know, he's not a bad guitar player. Did he, you get royalties did, for that? Uh, well, uh, most of them, yeah, but Kirk got my royalties for Metal Militia for many, many years, and you know he has to see the check, so I know somebody saw that I wasn't getting paid. So there's a sadness and bitterness. Not bitterness. No I'm, bitterness. I'm, I'm over it. A little it. upset. You know, it's just money. You know, like yeah. you said, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I'm, my happiness and my family, my wife and my children are more important to me than than anything in this world. And and um, you know, I, I I love our fans. I, I have so many things in this life that I'm happy about. But man, it's 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 my family and and obviously my relationship with God. I I, I take that very very personal. And you know, I don't talk to people about it. I don't I don't push it on him at all. It's my thing. And and uh I just look at it like where I'm at right now. Um yeah, twenty in Metallica and now look at me I'm sixty in Megadeth and, and <laughs> uh, I'm a Grammy winner, I'm a New York Times best selling author, all these things that if, if you know, I was signing autographs the other day, Joe, and, and I, I, I had these boxes. There was 3,000 jackets I had to sign. And for a moment, I flashed back to elementary school when I was in front of the chalkboard. I swear to God, and I had to write. Did you ever have to do that? Yeah, sure. God. And I don't know what brought that up, but I thought, oh my God, I can't even believe that. And and thinking about you know where I'm at now today and, and, and you know, just how the slightest deviation from where I was going could have ended me up anywhere else in the world. Because I wanted to do so many things. I wanted to be a, a professional athlete. I wanted to play baseball. You know, I, I, I thought about, I had a, a cousin who was a fighter pilot, and I thought that would be really great too. But, you know. you know, Dave, I think that's the case with a lot of people that wind up becoming successful at things. 
they could have gone in a bunch of different directions. They just chose to go in this one, but they still have other interests in things. Because I think the type of people that become really successful, like with you at playing guitar, is there are the type of people that can kind of be good at anything. They just have to love that thing. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm sure you love playing guitar, which is why you're so good at playing guitar. Mm -hmm. If you loved something else as much as you love that, you'd be just as good at that. I think it's an expression of who you are as a person. Mm. And I think that's one of the more unique things about guitar playing to me. It's like we were talking uh, outside earlier about Gary Clark Jr., about like if I listen to Gary Clark Jr.'s riffs, I can tell it's him. Like his sound is so distinctive. He's playing with the same instrument that other people play with, but his sound is so uniquely distinctive that I could pick it out. Mm. And that that was the case with Hendrix. And that's the case with you. Mm. It's a, the case with a lot of great guitarists. Like you hear the sound and you know who's playing it, which is really crazy. Mm. If you think about this instrument that basically anybody can buy, you mm. can get them in so many different places and so many people know how to play them. But some right. people specifically, who they are comes out in their music. And mm. as a fan of music, that's one of the cooler things about guitar playing to me or any kind of music playing. Is it like it? Th there's like a expression of who the person is who creates it that comes out when you listen to it. Mm -hmm. You're a big Hendrix fan. I love right? Hendrix. Did uh, I don't know if you knew this, but uh, a couple years ago, before I got diagnosed, I had the uh, privilege to do the Jimi Hendrix experience, and uh, the family did this thing where they go out and they have all these marquee players and they do Hendrix songs. And oh wow! They asked me to go do that. I thought, you know. I mean, I was n not influenced by Hendrix at all, but uh, I loved him as a musician and I respect his work. So, yeah, I'll do it. And, uh, of course, I'm playing a Flying V and he had a Flying V, so I had the Flying Vs uh, painted like his, which was really cool. I have two of them still. I have one with the Wang Bar and one without. I'm probably going to get rid of them at some point, but just haven't gotten around to it yet. But we did, we did uh, three songs, I think, I think it was three songs we did, and he uses a Strat. So the sound difference between a Flying V and a Strat is very significant. And for me to try and work that out, I was having a hard time, and, and I want to just say this to share how cool these guys were. Dweezil Zappa, I don't know if you know him. I didn't know him very well. Eric Johnson is another guy I don't know very well. But I came out one day, and the two of those guys were sitting there working on my amps. And I thought wow, this is so rad, because Eric is an amazing guitar player, and Dweezil's no slouch on his own. His dad, Frank Zappa, was an amazing guitar player, too. And they were sitting there working on my guitar sounds because they've been doing this Hendrix thing for so long. They know how to make the instrument sound right, and, and they did it. I played it. It felt awful because it wasn't what I was used to, but it sounded great. And I was so uh, grateful to those guys for doing that. It was really neat, you know. Uh, being around the whole Hendrix family, listening to those songs, too, it's mind-blowing how much he influenced musicians. Today. I yeah. mean, if he was alive today, he'd be one of the greatest guitarists alive, yeah. not just one of the greatest ever. Like, even though things... Look at this right here. That's his psychedelic V. <laughs> wow. There was a photo of... A bunch of photos that were released that someone sent me uh, today. I don't know when they came out, but they, it's uh, Jimi Hendrix in Ringo Starr's apartment. So you can find those. Because someone sent me, like, there was like 10 of them that I'd never seen before. Of Jimi wearing this like cool blue suit, hanging out in Ringo Starr's London apartment, smoking mm. cigarettes. Yeah. It's like he's cooking. Look, he's on the, on the kitchen stove. Very interesting. Yeah. 
wild pictures. And you think that guy was only 27 when he died, which is amazing. If you go back and listen to some of his stuff, listen to Machine Gun, you know, listen to Voodoo Child, listen to All Along the Watchtower. Yeah, there, there's the photos. That's it. <laughs> Look at that. See, that was different, Look at that man. cool you suit, know, man. People would go and hang out, and there was no, uh, there was no posses, and there was no, right. you know, shootings and stuff like that. And, and everybody just, they loved to be around each other. That says the time Ringo Starr evicted Jimi Hendrix for being a shitty tenant. Nineteen sixty-seven. Look at that's wild. That might be clickbait. Whether you yeah. evicted him for being a shitty tenant, who knows? That doesn't look bad. That's so cool, though. That, look that's at his clean fucking compared suit. to my apartment growing up. Well, his suit is amazing. Yeah, Did you ever have a blue dapper. velvet suit? I mean, no. come the fuck on. <laughs> no. It takes a lot of balls to wear a suit like that. I may have when my mom was forcing me to be a Jehovah's Witness, though. Oh. Who knows? I could have put had velvet everything. What year did that happen? Oh, God. I, I uh, When I was seven. Seven. Yeah. So do you remember a time before the Jehovah's Witness? Do you remember having Barely. to join? Barely. Barely. Um, my mom and dad got divorced when I was four, like I said, so there was a lot of uh, uh, disruption. My the- friend Kurt Metzger, who's a uh, fantastic comedian, he uh, was raised Jehovah's Witness. Uh-huh. And he has some crazy fucking stories about yeah. it. And he managed to escape. And one of the things he said that it's helped him with is like he sees cult-like thinking in like political ideologies. He see he sees it in like social movements. He's like, oh, you're not allowed to question this. No, no, I grew up with this. I know what the fuck this is. Mm-hmm. This is this is a cult. You just don't think it's a cult because you think you're you're out to do good. Mm-hmm. And so you're not allowing any discourse or any discussion. You're in a fucking cult. Mm-hmm. You don't know when you're in a cult, but you're in a cult. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to hear from guys like that. It's like people who come from communist countries mm-hmm. that get become very conservative when they come to America. Mm-hmm. Like they, they don't want to hear any Marxism talk. Shut the fuck up. Yeah. Like we grew up in a communist country. Get the fuck out of here with yeah. that. It's like that's how he is with with you know what happened to him growing up as a Jehovah's Witness. It's a weird. It's a weird religion. What like what would they? What was weird about it? Like when did you realize that things were weird? I mean, you're seven well, years old. It, is, that's probably the only life you know. It wasn't. It wasn't that it was very far away from any other kind of religion. You know, they believed in God and Jesus, and and uh, it was just the order of things, right? And. Uh, the thing that I didn't like was, you know, I'm a kid. I want to watch fucking cartoons on the weekend. I don't want to go out and sell these magazines, you know, and you go and knock on the door Saturday or Sunday morning. Hi, I've got this magazine. Fuck you. You kids, guys hung over, slams the door in your face, you know, and uh, that just was, I don't think, a cool way to have my childhood. I wanted to watch Wonderama. It definitely sucks. But do you think that any part of having a sucky childhood is responsible for like the amount of energy that you had that put into music? That like I think sometimes sure. when kids grow up in a sucky way, those are the kids like with athletics. That's often the case. It's often the case with comedy. Mm-hmm. That when kids grow up in a sucky way with a lot of bad experiences, those are the ones who wind up like pushing harder to mm-hmm. do great things and other stuff. Mm-hmm. I think it's the wolf nipping at your heels. Yeah, and, and it just. There's something there that uh, just wants to keep you not looking back. Right, like you don't feel stable ever. You're you're stuck in this shitty place that you want to get out of as a young kid. Mm-hmm. There's so many great artists. They that's how they grew up. They grew up in like this place where childhood sucked. Like 
assholes around you and you wanted to get the fuck out of there like that's yeah. that's such a reoccurring theme in people who become great artists yeah there's a lot of that yeah it's um it's always interesting when you look back though right like being a person now who's gone through all that and you went from that and all the drugs and then into was it alcoholics anonymous that where you became a christian did you do it from getting sober, or were you a Christian before that? No. Well, you, uh, again, Jehovah's Witnesses are a form of uh, Christianity. Right, so, but not... Um, it's kind of recognized as sort of a cultish... Well, yeah, they're well, all kind well, of... Well, here, here's the thing. Uh, real simple. Um, I believe in Jesus. I believe that that God's God, and Jesus is Jesus, and, and the Holy Spirit's the Holy Spirit, and, and that's it. And if you want to go to church, go to church. And if you want to read the Bible, read the Bible. And if you don't want to hear about it, don't listen. And and if you don't want people to tell you about it, then tell them to shut up. Um, for me, I try and uh, set a good example with my behavior. I don't ever try and uh, apostolize or whatever they call it. Uh, proselytize. Proselytize, yeah. yeah. Or or uh, even same thing with, you know, drinking or anything like that you know there's some saying there's nothing worse than a newly sober drunk <laughs> you know so I try not to tell people how to how to uh, live their life but one of the things I didn't like about that was um, they had this thing when they didn't agree with something the elders of the church would gather together and they would talk about the person in question and they would disfellowship them or a lesser degree would be disassociate and um and what, what is disfellowship what does that mean you are ostracized ostracized you, so you're not you still have to go to church you still have to show up you still have to do all of the but no one talks to you world. they cannot yeah they're not supposed huh. to they're not supposed to my sister it, got disfellowshipped and the girl that uh brought the accusations against my sister had lied uh, she had said something about my sister and this other dude being together, and I knew that, that it wasn't true because it, she, my sister liked the other brother. So <clears throat> um, she got disfellowshipped, and, and that was pretty much when I started to want to get away from it all because, you know, I wasn't really old enough to see any other inner workings of, of organized religion or stuff like that, but there's a lot of exposés out on that. How long does a disfellowship last? Who knows? They could just decide? I guess. And so it was... Uh, sins you'd have to do a sin is that what it is to get a transgression something that was uh, unacceptable in their eyes and then you got defellowshipped she did <laughs> yeah. or that's I mean a person yeah. would get defellowshipped mm -hmm. and so what other what was wacky about it in relationship to like standard Christianity okay like, well I the... couldn't have any friends uh, that were normal guys like you and me we couldn't be friends because I would have been a, a witness and you would have been of the world mm. um, of I, the think, world. I think they changed that now to like non-believers or something they used to call them worldly people right mm -hmm. and um uh, so other, you have to hang out with only Jehovah's Witnesses. Yes. And when you stood up at school, which back when I went to school, you know, we were a very uh, patriotic country and, and kids would stand up and they'd say the Pledge of Allegiance and, you know, do whatever. Um, and, but we could not. We were supposed to stand with our hands at our sides. And um, you did not get to celebrate Christmas. You did not get to celebrate birthdays. And, and that's enough right there to get just about any kid in their right mind to say, screw this. You take away my birthday, you take away Christmas, you take away all celebrations, and, and if I do something wrong in your eyes, I'm set outside of the, the fence. Uh-uh. I don't want to be part of this. 
so those are control issues, but there was was there anything wacky in their belief system that separated them from Christianity? Like, I'm not really totally I, aware of what Jehovah's Witnesses are into. Right. Well, again, they believe similar to what most Christians do. I never really got into wanting to be part of that religion. So When did um, you bail? 13. 13. So yeah. right when you started playing music. Perfect timing. Yeah. What a quick life right into some wild-ass music, though, to just have a life like that and then, bam, at 20, you're one of the founding members of Metallica. That's crazy. Mm. So it's a, and then forty years later, still banging. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. Yeah, thanks. It's amazing. Thanks. So when, but when did you get out of the Jehovah's Witness and into what we would you call what denomination are you? Okay, involved so in now? so I had to do like any uh, normal guy would do. Um, <clears throat> you get out of one thing that sucks, you do something else to extreme. So um, when uh, I bailed on the. JW thing with my mom. I ran away from home up to Idaho where my sister lived and, and uh, she was practicing black magic. So I got, I got into black magic and uh, I la- she, she uh, did not practice black. She was doing white, uh, white magic. But I, I had practiced some black magic uh, on two people. And um, What does was, that mean? Well, I don't want to get into it, but what the, the whole thing is. But um, you, you uh, as, as simply said, you know, you have somebody that you don't like and, and uh, the power of suggestion in your mind, you could um, say or do something and then, you know, uh, hope and pray that something will take place uh, that will even the score, so to speak. You know, uh, do I believe that if I prayed for your shirt to be white right now that it would happen? Well, if, if, if you know, the powers that be, you know, uh, the spirits of the universe want things to change, I could be struck blind right now by a white light. And, right, and but if you turn my white. shirt white, I think that would be a waste of a curse. It's really right. not a bad curse. Well, so the curses I did, <laughs> I did one on one guy that I was at school, and my nephew had told him that I was uh, practicing Kung Fu Sun Tzu at the time, and, and um, so he was like the, t- uh, the school tough guy. And I, I, it was my first day at school, so he walked past me and sucker punched me in the stomach, and I buckled over, and I thought, oh, all right, here we go. This is going to suck, this school. So we're going home and the bus is a two bus ride a big bus to a small drop off a little bus out to where we lived out in in the the rural uh, area and uh, we get off the first bus and everybody circles around and he's gonna beat me up and nothing happens and so I get in the bus and he gets in the bus and he walks out and elbows me in the back of the head when he's getting out and I had some chewing tobacco in my mouth so I swallowed it and I got so sick and I knew I had to do something or it was gonna keep happening. So I put a hex on him that he would get physically injured and he did and the other hex that I did was a girl in night school we went to in Marina. How did he get physically injured? I, I, it was just something they had to do with. But do you think, but he sounds like an asshole. Is, Guys like that get hurt all the time. He did get hurt. Yeah, but did do you think that it, he got hurt because you put a hex on him, or do you think he got hurt because he's an asshole and he's probably doing stupid shit every day? Guys like that always get hurt. I think he got hurt because he's an asshole and I put a hex on him. Both. Both those things. Yeah. What's that? Like, how do you do a hex? The whole reason I wouldn't play Conjuring anymore was because right. it has the instructions on how to do it. So uh, I don't want anybody to learn how to do this. But I will tell you this much. The, uh, it involved uh, um, using some food sources and, and making a, an effigy of sorts. And Jesus. then, and then um, you have to um, you do certain things to identify the doll. You know, And then... Um, 
you uh, break off a leg or an arm of the doll. And uh, it's basically what he did. I broke the leg off, and the guy got in a car crash, and his leg got mauled. And, and wow. um, you know, this was 45 years ago, so the statute of limitations have expired. But even still, I don't think you can get in trouble for hexes. Yeah, maybe in the spiritual world you do. Um, and, yeah, but I don't think and, there's a statute of limitations in the spiritual world. No, there's not. I think eternity means eternity. But um, the other one was much more fun. I think you probably would have liked that more. It was a sex hex I did on this girl. You named, did a sex hex on this girl named Susanna, and uh, I went to night school. That's be a good band too. And um, we were, I mean, I was like a skinny redheaded kid going to night school after surfing and, and, uh, she would be there and everyone loved her. And I was just some sweaty kid, you know, and, and, uh, she came to my house one night to go buy some hash cause I, I had a roommate that was selling pot and hash and stuff. And, um, so, uh, I had already done this, this, incantation on on this girl you know i, I can i ask before you go any further what you use for a good incantation versus a bad one like if you're doing gonna do a sex hex do you make a doll no you don't have to make a doll no what do you have to do paper paper yeah you just gotta conjure something down on paper no conjuring is in the air uh paper you would write you okay so you write something down on paper and that conjures no the sex you, hex? you have to do a prayer to invoke a spirit to be conjured. So anyway, so so the girl, she was, everybody loved her and they thought she was just so great. And, and you know, I liked her too. And I, and I just, I, we'll see if this works. And, so you wrote some stuff down. Yeah. Do you have to write it in a specific language? English. It's English. So I wrote her name, my name, and I drew, I drew some little pictures on there and then um, I, I burnt it and then said, said a prayer and, and the next night she came over to my apartment to buy this hash, right? And, and, you know, I don't know anything about anything. So she comes in and she goes, hey, what's your sign? And I said, I'm a Virgo. She goes, oh, my horoscope says I'm supposed to make love to a Virgo in a tropical surrounding. And I went and screwed a black light bulb in my bathroom and plugged the tub and said, here's a waterfall. Let's go. And, and I completely forgot about it until the next morning when I woke <laughs> up. She had, she had these geraniums in her hair, those red little flowers. And they were all over my bedroom, all over my bed. And that's the only way I even remembered. Are you sure that wasn't just because you're a cute guy and you were good at guitar and mm -hmm. she liked you? No. No? Because no. she was... She you was, look cute to me Yeah, well, you were 20. You. But, you know, she was she was like the <laughs> most prettiest girl in school, you know? Maybe she liked musicians. I don't know. You really think it was the sex sex? Uh, no, I think it's all make-believe, actually. Oh, you're, you're being sarcastic. No. You see no, how he's doing? No, no. I, I, think, I think a lot of it is power of suggestion, you know? Mm, I wonder. That'd be pretty crazy if you could actually do that, though. That sounds like well, a Stephen King Well, you've seen King people movie. that, like, the great, whatever his name is, the guy that can bend the uh, spoons and shit with right. his mind and right. stuff. There's a lot of people, but you know how they do that? They have a very specific spoon, and it reacts to the heat of you rubbing your fingers Oh, now on. you ruined it! Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> it's not kidding. magic. Yeah, well. It's I'm okay. not opposed to What's his name? Krasinski. Magic. The great Krasinski. No, that's oh, his name. Oh, I don't something, know. I mean, James something. Randi did it, and he's a, a non-believer. But, I mean, yeah. Penn and Teller can do it. All those music magicians can do it. I saw Banachek do it per in person. I saw him do it in front of my face. He did it. Yeah. I love and he Penn and Teller. Those guys are Yeah, blessed. they're amazing. Yeah. They're amazing. And they're so good for, for magic, too, because you they'll tell you that it's bullshit mm. and you know they're oh i've seen that show yeah, yeah. well that yeah. the show bullshit was about all kinds of things some yeah. of the things that aren't even bullshit like yoga but one of the things that they were doing was like doing magic and letting you in on the joke 
like letting you know that it's bullshit, but still yeah. doing it in such an amazing way that yeah. you were blown away by it. It's a genius show. But anyway, I I'm not I don't not believe in magic. It's I'm not. It could be real. I just haven't seen it. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that weird things can happen with people's minds, especially when people believe things. Yeah. And I don't. I'm not exactly sure if I understand the interface between people's minds. I think there's a, there's a lot more going on with people and their minds, like the way we interact with each other, mm -hmm. than I think we would like to believe. We like to believe that we're independent thinkers and that we're we're not that influenced by other people's thoughts. But I think we are in a big way. Oh, you certainly are. Imagine the propaganda that they could say, like if this whole thing, uh, here's an example of what we're talking about, magic. I had heard that David Copperfield had marched an elephant out into the middle of the Lakers' uh, court. This is what I heard. It was a magic trick and he made it disappear or something like that during halftime. Now, I don't have any proof to that. I don't know if it was ever a real story, if it was just some idiot talking. Let's find out. Let's Google it. Heard. Um, we need to Google that one because if he did, we need to have a talk with Mr. Copperfield. He might know some things. I mean, if you re had real magic and that's what you did, you just decided to do a Las Vegas show. There it is, the vanishing elephant. So this was on television? Is that what this was? He supposedly did it at the Lakers. Uh... So he closes the gate. Um, well, then a puff of smoke. Oh, they're going to show you how the trick is and done. And then two hours go by. Probably the, uh, yeah, they're showing how they do it. The unmasked magician guy. Yeah. When he went and ruined everyone's fun. Okay, in case go. anybody needs to get rid of an elephant. <laughs> right. Here's what you don't see. There are mirrors hidden inside each of the bars of the cage. Ah, oh, you bastards. When the magician triggers the explosives, the mirrors slide into place, locking your view into the cage. Oh, sneaky, sneaky. that's genius. You are no longer seeing the elephant netting inside the cage. Instead, you're seeing a reflection of the netting outside the cage. Ah! Inside the cage. The cage still there. Genius. This makes it appear as if the elephant has vanished. All right. Well, David fucking genius. Still did it. There you go. <laughs> it's a trick. It's a trick, just like the sex hex. <laughs> you ruined it. <laughs> Jamie's got some paper right now. He's writing some sex hexes. I saw him. All right, I'll do a sex hex between you and Jamie, and we'll see if no, it works. No, don't do that. Oh, It'll ruin our relationship. All right, I'm sorry, Joe. There's no need for this, Dave. Okay, let's just play um, So, but when when did you become a born-again Christian? Like, what year did that take place? Um, God, you know, it just was such a natural thing. I can't even remember when it was. I was in Texas, in Hunt, Texas. and there was Remember some... how old you were? Uh, not not too long ago, maybe 15, 20 years ago, maybe. Okay, so this maybe. is a, after all the I chaos. I mean, Jamie could find it because they, they made fun of me a lot when I got Who was they? The people on the net and shit like that. Those saying, terrible yeah, people. Just saying that I would get uh, wimpy with my playing, and, and it certainly didn't change anything because, you know, when I, uh, if you look at any of my lyrics, a lot of them are you know, from the book of Revelation and Daniel. There's a lot of... Uh, you know, the scary nightmare stuff that they talk about. And like uh, Washington is Next is about, uh, you know, um, Daniel talking about dreams and interpreting dreams. And, and um, you know, we've, we, Holy Wars, of course, Blackmail the Universe. There's so many, so many, many, many songs that, that talk about, you know, um, end time stuff, you know, stuff that's gone on during time, any kinds of super uh, awesome stuff like with the spiritual uh, stuff in nature where great things happen to good people, you know. Mm -hmm. um, like on, on our new album, Soldier On, is a song about um, 
kind of kind of walking away from something. You know, some people had said that it's a song about abandonment, and, and uh, some people said it's about perseverance. For me, the song is about some knowing somebody in your life, like you and I talked about earlier. You know, the difference between people who make it and who don't. You yeah, know? you you have to make that painful decision to walk away. And in that song, I talk about somebody that I knew that was making some really bad decisions in their personal life, and that I needed to walk away from, and I needed to soldier on in order to to uh, take care of myself. I, you know, it's like the masks that come down in the airplane. They say, you know, if you're traveling with a little bastard and he's fighting you, you know, put your mask on, let him pass out. And then, then uh, put your mask on him after That's you're safe. That's how they should say it. That's how they should say it. <laughs> yeah, you have to be safe first. You always have to put your mask on first. Yeah. Yeah, but that's so that or you carry can help oxygen. other people. Yeah, but you should, you, if you do that and you're the responsible one, that's the idea behind it, right? Right. You don't want to be out cold with a five-year-old trying to figure out what the fuck to do. Yeah. Yeah. Unless you have a parachute. Even then. Can opener. Yeah, even then. Um, so when you first became uh, a born-again Christian and then there was this uh, whatever what you'd call a backlash, that's died off, though. Sure it has. Yeah, because people realized you didn't change the way. I mean, you just I changed internally. My heart had. But to I mean, the music was still just as hard. Mm-hmm. I mean, everything was sure. still. So it's like people want this. Uh, people are very, very afraid of people changing. You yeah. know, very afraid of like when. I was just we, thinking that right when you said that. Yeah, they're often afraid of artists changing too. Like even though like artists like oftentimes want to make different kinds of music. They, well, come on. You remember when Coke changed its formula to <laughs> new Coke? What the hell's wrong with you people? That didn't make any sense because did they keep original Coke too? Did they have the original I don't know. Coke? I, Do you know the whole story behind Coke and one of the reasons why I think they changed it to new Coke? No, but I know it's, the really old, old Coke. Well, Coke was still, not old, old Coke, still new Coke. The Coke that you have not right now, not, not new Coke, the flavor, but Coke that's available in 2022 is made with cocaine. They, they process cocaine. They take out all the cocaine, and that's part of the flavor of the mm. Coke formula. If you, This is like fact. It sounds like conspiracy theory. But mm. if you find that the company in this country that processes the most medical pharmaceutical cocaine is the same company that supplies the... Um, let's make sure this is true. God damn. But I they, guess if they you find somebody in a parking lot with a bunch of Coke cans laying around him, you know what he's OD'd on. They, no, they, it doesn't have cocaine in it. Like, the original Coca-Cola had cocaine in it, but the, the cocaine, the Coca-Cola, rather, of today is free of cocaine, but it gets flavoring from coca leaves. Yeah, it's like part, the tar- the, yeah, the guarana. Remember that stuff down in Brazil? That's Yeah, guarana. Oh, that's guarana. a different thing. That's actually like a, a stimulant, like um, more of like a caffeine. That's yeah. like in acai. That has uh, guarana yeah, berries. I love that stuff, too. That stuff's great. But, yeah. but they use these coca leaves. They process them. They take out all the cocaine, and it's part of the secret flavor of Coca-Cola. Because hmm. like whenever Do anybody does a cola... Like RC Cola or something like that. It tastes good, but it doesn't taste like Coca-Cola. No. They don't exactly get it right, right? Right, right That That right. Coca-Cola taste everybody fucking loves. Yeah. Well, part of that Coca-Cola taste comes from coca leaves. So let's just, make sure that's true. That's so terrible. I'm pretty much Mexican 100% Coke? positive that's true. I've not tried any cocaine. No, 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 no. Mexican, Coca-Cola? Mexican yes. Coca-Cola. Yes, I have with um, sugar. Extra cane sugar. sugar in it. Yeah. yeah, it's yeah. delicious. It's yeah. very good. It you, good. Can, you can get that in California. Yes, sir. They have yeah, the, Tennessee. Uh, can you? Yes, sir. They ship it over in the bottles? Yeah. You got something good? No. Jamie? I think he's sleeping. Okay. No, there's something in there for sure. If if I know it's a it's a true story. So once uh he finds a good version of it, we'll read it. But mm-hmm. it's um the crazy history of Coca Cola is uh 
really interesting. I mean, it really originally was like a cocaine supplement. Like you could drink Coca-Cola and you get yeah. a little jolt of cocaine. Yeah. Which was normal. Okay. Pharmacist John Pemberton invented Coca-Cola in 1885, making the original formula for the beverage in his backyard. He advised Coca-Cola as a patent medicine that could cure headaches, upset stomach, and fatigue. Patent medicines weren't regulated. They often contained addictive ingredients like cocaine and opium and toxic ingredients like mercury and lead, according to the National Institute on Drug Abuse. The NIDA said in a 2020 blog post that Pemberton's recipe contained cocaine <coughs> in the form of an extract of the coca leaf, inspiring part of the soft drink's name. The coca leaf in its natural form is a harmless and mild stimulant compared to coffee. But <laughs> cocaine can be extracted from its leaves, according to the Transitional Institute. That's why people chew it. When they chew the right. coca leaves, it's really like a mild stimulant. Gregory Collins, PhD and associate professor of pharmacology at the University of Texas, San Antonio, also told Verify that the cocaine alkaloid is present at very low levels in less than 1% in most coca leaves. The cocaine alkaloid can then be extracted and purified to produce the drug cocaine. Coca-Cola likely contained cocaine alkaloid as part of the coca leaf extract at very low concentrations and similar to the coca leaf teas. Cocaine was legal and a common ingredient in U.S. medicines aimed at curing a wide range of ailments when Coca-Cola was invented, which is pretty wild, according to NIDA. People thought cocaine was safe to use in small amounts at the time. It probably is. In 1970, cocaine became an expensive recreational drug. Now, find out about Coca-Cola in today's form, because in today's form, I know they use something from the coca leaves. It, they're trying to say, despite this, U.S. Coca-Cola, uh, Coca-Cola U.S. directed Verify to a statement that says cocaine has never been an added ingredient in Coca-Cola, and the drink does not currently contain cocaine or any other harmful substances. No, it doesn't c contain cocaine anymore, but I think it's flavored with the coca leaves. I think they use coca leaves, and I'm I'm pretty sure that the company that does it also makes. I think they process out the cocaine and they use that for medical grade cocaine, which is still a thing. Like lidocaine, I believe, comes from that as well, hmm. which is they use as a. Teeth. Well, yeah, they use it for other things too. If it's 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 like a um, anesthetic. That's it exactly. It numbs you, hmm. I guess. Shame so does boring people. What's that? So does boring people. Yeah, boring people numbs them, or just like putting them in a job that sucks that numbs them too. But it's not as effective, hmm. apparently. As cocaine. That used to be the thing that people did when they would go to parties. They would yeah. just do a little cocaine, have some fun. End up in the bathroom. Yeah. It's uh, now with fentanyl being added to cocaine, you're taking a giant risk. So number one uh, cause of death between people 18 to 49 in this country now mm. is overdoses. Well, it's, it's that they don't think they're getting a speedball. They think they're getting cocaine, but they're getting cocaine that's cut with fentanyl. Or they think they're getting ecstasy. They're mm. getting ecstasy that's cut with fentanyl or street Xanax or there's a lot of different things that people get wow. that they don't know. I'm so glad I don't know all this anymore. Fentanyl is the, the doses that kill you are so small. It's like a, like not even as big as like a pencil eraser will fucking kill you. Hmm. It's really potent stuff. So like, like, I mean, I mean in a flat circle, like the, the size of a pencil eraser, I don't even mean like a thickness hmm. that will fucking sh for sure kill you. But the, just the surface area of a, the, eraser of a pencil mm -hmm. will kill you yeah it's a terrible terrible thing 
Okay, just one company in the U.S. is licensed to import and process coca leaves, the Stephen Company of Northfield, Illinois. After Stephen processes coca leaves at its Maywood, New Jersey plant, it extracts the cocaine. The company uses the spent leaves to create a cocaine-free extract and sends the extract to Coca-Cola. Good, I was right. Coca-Cola is grandfathered in as far as receiving the extract. It's the only company in the U.S. licensed to have it, making it the only soft drink to have coca leaf extract as one of its ingredients. Pretty fucking wild. Yeah. The cocaine that's been extracted from the leaves is sold to Malincropt uh, Pharmaceuticals, the only company in the U.S. licensed to purify cocaine for medical use, specifically cocaine hydrochloride, a prescription jug used in hospitals as a local anesthetic by eye, ear, nose, and throat doctors. Malincopt is a, a long-time St. Louis company that was sold in 2000, but its operations headquarters is still based in St. Louis. Wild shit. Did you ever chew coca leaves? No, I used to stick paste in my nostrils. Hey, that's more effective. <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking that right now. You're talking about all those gorillas dragging backpacks full of shit up into America and, and uh, or getting it into the... the into the vacuum coming up to America, some of this stuff. You were talking about them chewing, and I just pictured guys stuffing that stuff from the uh, pirate uh, movie with Tom Hanks in it. What was that stuff? Oh, called? Cat. Cat, yes. Cat, yeah. Cat, 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 cat. Yeah, that's, a, that's a, some weird narcotic, right? Yeah. yeah. Cat is, uh, it's K-H-A-T. Yeah. I think that's uh, another kind of an alkaloid that's a stimulant. That it's supposed to have um, almost like methamphetamine effects. Mm, I don't know. I thought it was supposed to be more like opiates, but... I feel like it's like a speed. I'm pretty sure it's a speed. Again, I don't, I don't know anybody who's tried that stuff, though. That sounds pretty interesting. Yeah. You find any of that? Cat? What is that shit? That was a good movie. That was a good movie. I thought oh, so. I, I never saw that movie, unfortunately. Yeah. Cat is a stimulant, and chewing it can make people more alert and talkative, produce feelings of elevation, suppress the appetite. Huh. Yeah. Isn't it more potent than that? Yeah. I, I think the, they're being really, f they're probably selling it. They're being li pretty <laughs> liberal, yeah. Pretty, pretty gen general in their talk, I guess. Do you know how that all started? The the pirate thing? Mm -mm. It started from people, uh, uh, it was, they were originally just fishermen, and people were dumping shit the off the coast of Somalia. Yeah. yeah. I think they called themselves the People's Coast Guard of Somalia. Google that the People's Coast Guard of Somalia. I'm pretty sure that's what they originally started calling themselves They were they were fishermen who were dealing with people dumping toxic waste into the ocean uh, And they were killing all the fish, fish. So sucks. they were violating international law these people that were doing that So what they would do is they'd kidnap those people and hold them for ransom mm -hmm. for what they did to the ocean right. And then they realized well fuck this. Let's just start kidnapping people. Wow, and then they just chewing cat and jacking people here it is. Du, 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 du. Somalis initially banded together to protect more than a thousand miles of the country's coastal waters from illegal fishing vessels and the dumping of toxic waste. When Mohammed Sal Bar was ousted in 1991, Somalia disintegrated into warring clans, each with its own militia. Fourteen different national governments followed, but have failed to unite the country. Ethiopia inspired and supported. Da, 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 da. Okay. Yeah. So they started off just trying to protect their waters they got turned into characters in a tom hanks movie yeah yeah i didn't see that, that seems movie. that seems like it would really suck you know just i remember when they had that uh, thing going off the the 
the coast in in the um, in the Gulf. Um, what was that 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 deep deep water uh, something? Deep water horizon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was gnarly. That was really gnarly. I remember um, seeing pictures of the smoke coming up off of the sea. And, you know, when you're when you're flying. You can, oh yeah. And people were taking pictures up there. I I don't know how many of them were from Skylab. A lot of them looked like they were just commercial pictures, but. Boy, that was sketchy. That's what's so nuts about pulling stuff out of the ocean, pulling oil out of the ocean, when you realize they have to cap a broken pipe at the bottom of the fucking ocean that's spewing oil out. Like, and you're like, hey, do you guys have like a backup plan? Do yeah. You know, do, can yeah. you do this quick? Right. Like, how long does this take? And it turns out it takes a long ass time. It sure does. Is that it right there? Is that, you can see it from the sky? Is that a satellite view that, of it? That's, that, that's not the smoke, though. Is that just the oil spill? Yeah, yeah. just the oil. I don't Holy think smoke shit. You can see pictures. it from space. Well, fortunately, the ocean is really fucking big. So even when they cap these things, even when they dump trillions of gallons, it's temporarily horrific. But the ocean eventually sort of like gets Absorbs back into it, form. Yeah. Look at that. Look at the fires, though, that are coming off of that thing. That is so crazy that that's in the middle of the ocean, that a hole that we dug into the ground is on fire and fire right through the ocean. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty gnarly. Oh my God, we're so nuts. It's like, to, to be able to do that, like that to me is like a lot like the early nuclear power reactors, like the, the problem with like the Fukushima thing. It's like they didn't have a, an ability to shut them off. Yeah. <laughs> what are you yeah. doing? No contingency What are plan. you doing? You guys, you're, you're literally making nuclear waste you're you've got a nuclear reactor going and you can't shut it off you know we have a song on the new record about chernobyl and oh, yeah? uh, there's um it's called the dogs of chernobyl which was about uh, when people got the evacuation notice um i had watched that that b movie uh it was just something like an extreme vacation thing where these guys were going into chernobyl and then they had something else that was on on uh tv in la i think it was um it was a series on chernobyl and a lot of people thought that I wrote that about that. But I'd watched that other movie, and, and there was a scene where the kids that had gone on this uh, extreme vacation had seen all the dogs that were left behind in Pripyat, in the city where uh, Chernobyl is. And, and um, the song, believe it or not, is um, it's a love song. It talks about abandonment and where the person um, realizes his the girl, the person he loves or whoever, um, left him behind without a, a peep and he's like one of the dogs of Chernobyl because um, you know I, I was listening to the movie and watching the guy and he said they just left and imagine what it was, must have been like to be a pet owner and having to leave and you can't take your pets well imagine what it's like to be the pet and be completely abandoned or whatever um, yeah so so I use a lot of weird metaphors like that when you were saying about you know the the meltdown and stuff um, I did a lot of research and in fact my radiologist who did my uh, treatment for my cancer helped me write some lyrics on the end part of that because I wanted to know what the terminology is. I mean, you seem very, uh, very uh, well um, with your vocabulary. I know what I'm trying to say, but um, I didn't know a lot of the, the terminology that I want to use with, with radiation, chemotherapy, any of that kind of stuff. So I asked him and he came back with this stuff was magnificent about um, radiation poisoning and all the different stages so mm. um it's been th that's an interesting thing for me too just not being an uh, you know a, a, an observer in life and making sure that when you know i meet people just kind of trying to learn a little bit about them when when uh, you, you were talking about um the um the meltdown again it's like 
I, I can I can see so many pictures from that movie and and trying to get that across in a lyric is really really tough. I don't know if if you've ever really talked to any of your guests about getting into research on lyrics and stuff like that, but that's usually the thing that takes me the longest to get a record done is doing the research on the lyrics. That's interesting because I've never talked to anybody who's done research on lyrics. Yeah. Most of the time, I guess you know it's obviously there's different ways of writing lyrics and different mm -hmm. kind different things you mm -hmm. want to project have you always been a kind of guy that like when you write a song you have a kind of like a theme to it that you're trying to express like with this Chernobyl thing and you want to make sure that you get it through research you want to make sure you get it through the proper use of terminology but also like cre like has that always been a way that you've done music or yeah. do you just I've tried really hard to to uh, do that. Yes, uh, in fact, in the very beginning, when our albums were uh, just just first coming out, I'd always try and use some words that that would require the listener to look it up. You know, not not right. just because I was being some kind of smart ass or anything, but I just wanted to to you know use something a little bit different than you know simple lyrics or have to dummy down a lyric because I can't find anything that rhymes with quarter or orange or something. <laughs> you know. So like with conjuring, like that was mm -hmm. something that you would you. There's something in that that you don't even want to sing anymore because of it, because you had the history. No, of there's it. nothing in there. There's something missing. Something's missing from that hex, so that you can't do it. Even if you even if you knew how to unjumble the the the, the words in there, there's a couple things missing. That's fascinating. And you know, so, do you do that with all your songs? We have like sort of like a, a a theme to it where it's like something. There's a message in it. Try to Let, let's take the title track for example. The sick, the dying, and the dead. People think that's about the pandemic uh, or the you know scamdemic, depending on who you are. Um, I I, uh, I I know that when this happened, I was going through my cancer treatment, and I I uh, wanted to to um, just put one foot in front of the other and get to the uh, the studio, do my job. Right. You know. Um, and uh, when this lyric started to come together, it was actually uh, several years ago, Joe. I was watching uh, Frankenstein, uh, um, I think it's Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, the one with uh, De Niro. Oh, yeah. He, playing, he had that fucking badass jacket. Oh, I wanted that jacket so bad, man. It was so cool. Anyway, Let me see so that jacket, Jamie. There was one uh, um, scene in the movie where this guy's walking through uh, somewhere and he's collecting bodies and stuff and and it just made uh, an impression on me and i thought you know um that to me is, there it is. look at that thing yeah it's oh. so cool <laughs> yeah if it was only washed he was a cool frankenstein it was he interesting was. to watch de niro play frankenstein yeah i mean after raging bull after was this before or after the one he did with juliette lewis cape fear what cape was that fear? one yeah Oh, that God, was great. That was, that was great. He was great. Well, he is great. De Niro's yeah. the fucking man. Anyway, so this is what the inspiration was, you know, with bringing to life the uh, reanimation of Frankenstein or Steen, if you're uh, Gene Wilder. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I, uh, I thought, wow, this, is, this would be a really uh, great thing to talk about instead of being about, you know, the uh, pandemic, uh, which is obvious, is uh, to, to sing about that would be to talk about the Black Plague. You know, because oh, that's wow. more along the history what Megadeth writes about. You know, scary uh, things have happened in history. So that's what this is about. It's about the Black Plague. It starts off. It says the, the ship sailed to Sicily, and it was the fleas that bit the rats, that bit the people, and infected blood, and and the stage was sat. And mm. and that's basically how the lyrics uh, on that's that a that dope song. album cover. Look at that. <laughs> I love that you still make albums. I love that bands like you brought in vinyl. 
I love that bands still do this because when I was a kid, and I know I'm old, but for kids today, a big part of the getting an album experience was the artwork. Yeah, absolutely. Like, look at that fucking artwork. Absolutely. That's a big part of it for kids. When I was a kid, to look at it, you'd be like, fuck. You'd open it up mm -hmm. and check out the, the liner notes. Mm -hmm. and it was That was a big part of the experience. And unfortunately, that kind of went away with CDs, where it was this smaller, sort of less compelling version of it. It mm -hmm. was still, you still had CD art, mm -hmm. you know, you still had a cool cover, you know, and some of them, like Dr. Dre's The Chronic, they were very iconic, you know, a lot of them were iconic. Like, you could see that image, you know, uh, but there's something about an album an actual physical album that was so important when we were kids. It was it was such an important part of the yeah. experience. You listened to music, uh, uh, an album at a time. You didn't listen to a song at a time. You know, the good thing about um, this record, we have a couple different versions of it. Um, we have uh, uh, the version that you're holding with that lenticular cover. It's like a 3D cover, and, and it has bonus tracks on it. We also have a 180-gram German vinyl that we had made. Uh, there's uh, It's a two-fold album, three songs each side, so the groups are very far apart. Sounds really great. Unlike mm. Black Dog, you know, when you listen to that, and it goes, hey, mama, hey, hey, mama, you know, it's right. because the grooves are so damn close together, you know, you hear it bleeding through the track. And uh, for this album, it's just pristine. We had Ted Jensen engineer, uh, a master engineer it, and uh, Chris Rakestraw and I uh, produced it with Josh Wilbur um, mixing it. And um, uh, God, I just lost my trend of thought with the, this, um, the, last thing I was talking about was the vinyl. Um, oh, I know what I wanted to say. The, the, one of the vinyl has uh, rare tracks on it. It has a cover that we did with Sammy Hagar, um, This Planet's on Fire, from when he left Montrose before he got into Van Halen. He had this raging song called This Planet's on Fire. So we did that, and I called Sammy up, and I said, hey, would you want to play on this? And he said, yeah, sure, send me the track. So we sent him the track, and he goes, I'll sing a but dude I ain't fucking playing on that with you shredders and, and I went oh man that's cool because I really looked up to him and we played that song This Planet's on Fire in Panic before I joined Metallica oh wow almost probably would have played it in Metallica if I would have stuck around a little longer wow that's fucking awesome when you were uh, in, when you were in Metallica what was the stuff that you guys were listening to back then all kinds of stuff. I think I listened to uh, different stuff than James and Lars. James was kind of being held hostage in Ron McGovney's house, so whatever was being played there, or whenever they would go to the local uh, import record store, they would get cool stuff. We usually went up to the record plant in San Francisco. There was a really cool store up there, and they had the greatest vinyl patches, T-shirts. Every time we'd go up and play The Stone or The Mubuhe, um, we'd go in there and we'd get uh, patches and T-shirts and stuff, and, and not so much vinyl because, you know, you're traveling, you don't want to get vinyl and take it home and have it all foobar by the time you get home. But, right. but uh, that was a real cool thing was the trek from L.A. up to San Francisco and whatever souvenirs we'd bring home. How was James being held hostage? He had to live at Ron's house. He had to? It's a metaphor. I'm, I'm joking around. Oh. So, so what was happening was James, uh, I think he mentioned uh, something on, uh, um, about... Uh, I can't really remember much about him uh, when we were growing up together, but I, I think I think his dad died, and then his mom got really sick, and he moved out. He was living with Ron, and and I'm joking when I say he's being held hostage by Ron. But uh, he was living at Ron's, and then when when we kicked Ron out of the band, James moved in with me and my mom down in Costa Mesa, which was <laughs> really uncool. Me and him sharing a bedroom that was about the size of this table here, and uh, yeah. Um, 
that's rock and roll, though, we used right? To, we used to, yeah, yeah, we would get so, I mean, he loved to drink vodka. I don't know if he's still drinking or not, but we would drink vodka like crazy, and, and um, he had this little pickup truck, and we would drive from Costa Mesa up to Huntington Beach, uh, where we would celebrate and party with all my friends from Huntington Beach that... James didn't know because James was from Norwalk and Downey, kind of a kind of an uncool um, um, little area where he was living at. They covered it with a freeway now, so it gives you an idea how significant the neighborhood was. But um, I, I remember driving back and forth up PCH, and it was foggy. I mean, bad fog. And this guy would be driving pretty quickly down PCH, and we were both drinking. And and I I. I it was probably a safe bet if we would have done that too many more times we were going to get in an accident because I lost a, a friend the very first time we played uh, down in Dana Point with Panic on the way home. The the drummer in the band uh, got in a car crash along PCH coming home. So it's always been a sore spot for me, that area in Huntington Beach and, and the coastline. Well, the coastline has always been a really dangerous place, yeah. the, uh, particularly for car accidents and drunk driving, like around Malibu and that area. There's mm. a ton of accidents. I know multiple people that have been in accidents sense mm-hmm. there it's also it's like it's easy to get distracted the ocean's on the side of you and it's only a two-lane road mm-hmm. in some spots it's like yeah and there's a lot of bars around that area you know there's a lot of people i didn't spend much time in malibu i i preferred um you know when, when i went to the beach i went down by huntington and newport i used to surf down in newport and and that's where a lot of the punk rock stuff that influences this new record came from i was a big fan of jello biafra and the dead kennedys and we ended up doing a, a dead kennedys cover on this record again uh, police truck i don't know if you've ever heard that song or not but uh, uh the dead kennedys got banned playing up in san francisco because of some of the things that the frontman jello had said i think uh, it was either in an interview or in his lyrics, but they weren't having any part of it anymore. And and I just loved that band because you know I was a little surf punk, and and I thought, yeah. What did Jello Biafra say that got people? I don't know. Um, Jamie he's can probably a, find he's out. He's a fascinating guy. There's a lot of his spoken word stuff that's to music. Have you ever heard of that? His his stuff. No. He has I, these long rants. To music that are very interesting. I've heard his rant done by someone else. I heard when Ice T did uh, the beginning of um, his album, he had Jello uh, do something on a song called "Shut Up, Be Happy." That's how I ended up becoming so close with Ice. We met at our management's company, uh, Lipman and Kahane, and Ice and I were in there talking. And I said, "You know, that's the desk that." Gretchen or whatever the girl's name from the Nymphs or the Pixies or whatever pissed on their manager's desk. That was the famous desk he was sitting on. And so I told him, yeah, I might want to stand up. So then we ended up becoming friends. I did a Raider record one time and the guy says, what's your top five records? And I said, OG, 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 OG. And uh, he heard about that and he thought it was really cool. You know, I, I had heard some of his stuff and I had no idea it was even Ice Like Colors. That's a great song. That's a great song. Yeah, it is a good movie too, man. Yeah, that movie, That's a that was... God, it had to be like 88 or something like was that, Was it right? Penn and Dreyfus? Was that who that was? I yeah, think so. Sean yeah. Penn. Yeah. Dreyfus, yeah. Yeah. Was it Dreyfus or no, was no, it... No, no, um, no. It's the wrong name. That's the guy from Jaws. It was... Right. Yeah, exactly. It wasn't... I it can was, picture him right now. Oh, oh God. God. Bald guy. He's in a lot of shit. He always plays Thin like the mustache. old cop that knows better. Yeah. God damn it. He's a fucking brilliant actor. Colors. Robert Duvall. Robert Duvall. Oh, Thank yeah. you. Godfather. He was in The Godfather. He was a lawyer, right? He was in a lot of things. That guy's amazing. Yeah. But yeah, that that was a that was a fun movie. But that song, Colors, 
Yeah, that's a good track. Yeah. Oh, Ice T had some great shit, man. Uh, he asked me to do a couple tracks on his uh, body count stuff, and and I was really uh, eager to do that. It was a song called Civil War. I uh, played on that and and did some uh, spoken word on that too. Um, yeah, cool talent. You know, he's the longest running male actor on a TV show in, in, in history. Isn't that crazy? And he plays a cop. Yeah. The guy who wrote and sang Cop Killer. <laughs> the guy who plays a jewel burglar. Yeah, I, I'm reading his yeah. book Split Decision right now, and it's crazy. Longest running cop ever on television. That's hilarious. Yeah. That's great. Good for him. Yeah. He's killing it. He's uh, he's one of the OGs of the L.A. rap world. Yeah, you know, he like is. when when gangster rap became giantly popular in the late '80s, yeah. Ice T was one of the OGs. He was is. Yeah, I mean, he had some fucking great songs. Six in the morning, mm-hmm. some great songs. You know, it's uh, I love seeing those guys still doing it today too. Mm-hmm. You know, I I when I was a kid and rap was first sort of coming out, I was wondering like, we're, are we going to see like rappers tour in their later years the same way that we see rockers tour in their mm-hmm. later years? Because when we were a kid, we thought of it as being a young person's game. Mm-hmm. You know, rap or rock and roll, really. Right. You know, but it seems like there was a renaissance somewhere at some point in time where people wanted to see those old guys get back on the road again and and still do the same shit and still kill it. You know, I, I have never really gotten that uh, immersed in the rap or hip-hop world, so I don't really know a lot of the players. Um, you know, I, I know the, the regulars, uh, you know, um, N.W.A., right. uh, you know, obviously Ice and Ice Cube and all those guys, and, and uh, there, there's... there's um, not anybody that really came to mind to do that part. We have Ice singing on on one of our songs. I think did I tell you that? Mm-hmm. So there's there's uh, on the Night Stalker track on here. We actually had him do a guest voice appearance for me now because we're we're ping ponging back right, and forth to right. guest appearances That's on awesome. each other's records. So he uh, is playing uh, Colonel Kretz from Apocalypse Now, <laughs> so to speak, in the lyric where uh, we, uh, in, in the Night Stalker song on, on the new record, I was going to write it about Richard Ramirez and then I did some research on him and Joe, I thought, this guy's just too evil, too sick. I would never want to write anything about him. So I ditched the Night Stalker thing and then I found out my daughter was dating a fighter pilot for uh, the uh, base up in, in Kentucky with the, uh, the Apaches, and, and and I thought that was pretty cool, and, and found out that the battalion up there is called the Night Stalkers, and I went, all right, I got my title back. back. <laughs> I got my title back. So I, I met a friend of mine who I'm very close with named John Clement, who was uh, a, a pilot, and told me a lot, introduced me to, Sue, uh, to, to several of the people up at the base, and um, we started our relationship with the uh, Night Stalkers there. The song has uh, ice in there playing pretty much like how Lou Gossett Jr. did in in, um, Officer and a Gentleman gentleman when Gear goes... I got nowhere else to go while he's holding his nuts, right? And and, uh, I think he was the one that got kicked in the balls. And um, I I just thought, you got to have that kind of uh, grittiness. Yeah. You know, and then and then cross that with Colonel Kretz and and see uh, who could do the ice. Ice is perfect. And mm. and then so I said, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to say. And I gave him uh, artistic license to do whatever he wanted to do to what we sent him. And and uh, I hope when you hear it, you like it because it's, awesome. it's pretty cool. Well, what's also awesome is uh, that you guys are constantly putting out new shit. Still, mm-hmm. that's what's really cool. I I love old. I love like I saw the Stones when they were in town, and it's amazing. But it's mostly, Keith Richards played a couple new songs, mm-hmm. but it's mostly 
the stuff that they've been known for for all these decades. Mm. But it's still amazing to see. Yes. Like at 70, he's fucking Biden's age. Yeah. And Mick Jagger's out there fucking dancing around on stage yeah. and he's Biden's age. He showed, yeah. It's he, wild. Yeah. I mean, when we were kids, we never thought of 78-year-old rockers. That would be... I didn't know anything that was 78 years old. Right. But you would never imagine that... Because no, none of those people from the early... I mean, I guess... I mean, I don't wonder how old James Brown was when he stopped touring. But most of those guys, you didn't see them in their 70s mm -hmm. do, doing rock and roll songs that they would sing when they were in their 20s. Mm -hmm. It's wild to see yeah yeah well lyrics change meaning for me it's kind of hard to sing about a a anarchy when i've got a, a aston martin in my driveway <laughs> you know but uh, of course I, right? I, I thank the fans for that and you know i i would never i don't want to ever lose sight of that and think that this is my own doing i work my ass off joe and i know you do too and and um the things that i have i know came from the support for what we're doing and and we sing about stuff not everybody wants to sing about you know there's a lot of stuff on this record like Junkie, for example, we started off really heavily on this conversation with drug talk and stuff. But I think the beauty about that was we talked a little bit about it. We, the people who are out there that are struggling, heard what we were saying. I heard maybe something in what I said that maybe made them, you know, not hear me but listen to me and maybe find out. You know, I, you know, I don't like Dave, but I, I like the fact that he was dying and that he was able to pull the nosedive up and, mm. and boy things have sure gotten good for me lately well that is always a great message for people to hear especially someone they admire someone they admire that has gone through everything that you've gone through that you've been open about from drug addiction and chaos and then and now health cancer free mm -hmm. doing great doing jujitsu doing great living healthy mm -hmm. that's so important for people to hear because so many people when they're they're on a certain trajectory they feel like there's no way of getting off the train mm -hmm. they're on the train they're too. stuck yeah they're stuck mm -hmm. they're headed to a fucked up life and when a person like yourself can say you know what i was on that train too and i said fuck this i'm getting off and turned it around that, so a lot of people are afraid to make that 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 jump though yeah. they, they're afraid to take both feet off of first base and consequently they'll never get to second base and for me i look at uh, a lot of the things that were holding me back and i needed them joe i needed them to beat my ass i needed to i needed to get all of the stubbornness whooped out of me you know i i was a person that uh, you know if if i wanted something done I was going to get it no matter what and now I, I step back and I say you know if I want something done it's what's right that needs to be done and if it's not what I want it doesn't matter it's what's right because we have a huge huge organization and there's a lot of people who are counting on us to be able to bring them entertainment especially now with the way the economy is the way the people are just feeling like what's the use we come there we help them just let go just just for that hour we've got 55 minutes we get to play with uh, five finger death punch and and uh, we we make the best out of it yeah, that's a beautiful thing for a fan, you know, that that you're you're continuing to do that and for for fans that are of every everything and anything that artists produce. It's it's when your life is shit, but you know the fucking new Megadeth album's coming out and mm -hmm. you get pumped and mm -hmm. then you hear it, it elevates you. It does. That's a beautiful thing about art. 
the beautiful thing about someone creating something that people can enjoy is that it, for those people that it, that it hits them like, oh yeah, they feel better. Mm -hmm. It really can, music in particular is amazing that way. It actually changes the way you feel. It does. It's like David Goggins won't listen to music when he runs because he thinks it's cheating. <laughs> I used uh -huh. to say that too. <laughs> I used to say that too, but I'm yeah. a hypocrite because yeah. I started listening to it when I work out because it really does make working out easier. If you listen to a great soundtrack, like when you're on like uh, an elliptical machine or uh one of those Airdyne bikes, it sucks. It's boring. You don't you don't want to just mm -hmm. fucking sit in there and huff along for an hour. But if you listen to good music, you get fucking pumped. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like a drug. Yeah, it yeah. really does hit you. Yeah, there's a motivational thing I was uh, mentioning earlier with you about uh, Schwarzenegger was on it. But it was this hour-long motivational thing called Let's Fucking Do It. And, and um, <laughs> I downloaded it, and I remember I was going through a real hard time in my life at the time. We just moved out to Nashville, and I was having this, this real awful human being in my career. He was uh, trying to... Uh, say he was um you know working with us as a manager but it was uh, farther nothing farther could be from the truth because we went 60 days one time without talking and and i and i wrote him a letter that day and i said look man you know what uh, you're done we're out of here and i went over to 5b the last seven years of my life has been the dave mustaine charm offensive and we've been really really working on on getting our rightly space in history and and our position uh, in in uh the whole touring world and and recording world you know some things we had to let go of like some people that we were really close to and, and it was just they were just bad for us yeah, well, that's one of the unfortunate things that does happen in a journey, and that's one of the things that I admire most about bands is that they can figure out all those internal disputes between band members, which are inevitable. Mm -hmm. Band members and then also members of the crew and members mm -hmm. of the management, and so it's always, it's constant conflict. Mm -hmm. It's hard for people to like find peace in that. It's uh, amazing when a band can keep it together, mm. you know? I mean, artists are crazy. I mean, every, there's a lot of stuff. So many crazy people, you know, and including guys like yourself who come out of that with peace. It's like in the beginning, like people are nuts, you know, and, and they're trying to make nutty music. You know, mm -hmm. it's like there's a lot of a uh, lot of thoughts that don't gel together. You know, a lot right. of people's ways they're living their lives, mm -hmm. you know. I think what's cool is what you're saying that's so important for people is to see that you can you can have those things in your life and still get past them and get past them and then be a guy like yourself who has a very specific ethic that he, he lives his life by and that that's that's available to other people too they can hear you say that and go you know what i want to do what dave's done i want to live my life in that manner mm -hmm. you know and it's really positive thank you it's and i know you realize it's positive too which is really cool cuz you you talk about it and you know that it can affect people. Like if you think about how, who you were when you were a 14, 15 year old kid, mm -hmm. if you'd heard a guy like you that you admired talk about that, it puts it in their head and they mm -hmm. realize like, oh yeah, there's a, a right way to live this life. Mm -hmm. There's a way to live this it's life. It's a seal of approval from someone that you look up to. Yeah. It's almost an endorsement. And you know, that's one of, I think, a, a, a very strong benefit of religion for a lot of people is that it gives them a very strong moral scaffolding to live their life by. Good word. You know what I mean? I mean, yeah. sort of like it's a structure that allows mm -hmm. you to sort of like you always have a place to think, always have a place to go. This is it's like there's there's ways you live, period. And in doing that, it makes trials and tribulations, difficult moments easier because you do recognize that there's a mm -hmm. process to life and that there's a way to do this where you're going to be a good person. and You're going to feel good about yourself mm -hmm. and still you can 
overcome things and succeed. There's a lot of stuff that that uh, you need to. I don't know. You got to have the the common sense to know you've got to overcome it. Yeah. Some people they they just get trapped in that place where you get the, the like we were talking earlier about the Brian Wilson story and and all these other stories like with Elvis and and you know where you have enablers around you. Yeah. And an enabler is uh, a word that uh, signifies exactly what it means. It's just people helping you do things that aren't good for you. Sometimes that that could be good for you, but most gen- most gen- Generally, most often it's not. And um, those are the people. Uh, I was just working with my son. He was managing a group with Danny Nozell over at CTK. And um, they were managing a band. Uh, one of the band members just died because he had someone um, that he started seeing who um, the guy would wake up and, and she would give him four beer cans in this vest he used to wear. So he'd start his day with beers all over. <laughs> Jesus Christ. And he was staying at a house. My my son went over there with someone else to go move him. And the dresser, all the drawers were full of empty beer cans. It was so so bizarre. You know, so and and this is someone that's coming in there and sneaking booze to a guy that's supposed to be drying out to save his life and consequently he's dead now and which is a bummer. Oh. Man, yeah, that's the worst when someone finds an enabler instead of someone who can pull them out of it. Mm-hmm. Someone just lets you keep doing it. <sighs> it's such a, a normal part of people that are going through uh, any sort of success in the public eye too. There's so much pressure that's involved, whether it's uh, performing in a band or you know anything where you're mm-hmm. doing it publicly. It's sort of uh, people look for a release valve. They want what they want. Yeah. And they also want escape, you know, they want escape from the, just the angst of being, you know, and that's, alcohol's one of the best escapes, because you just don't give a fuck. You get yeah. hammered, you don't give a fuck, but yeah. you're slowly killing yourself, you know, and it's one of those things where it's so common, you know, that term common sense is such a strange term, right, because it's not that common. It's, yeah. <laughs> we call it common sense, but it's, I mean, it's less common than not having common sense, you know, how, yeah, unpopular sense. Yeah, if you common sense is probably like you know twenty percent of the people have it, <laughs> fifty if the most. If you're being really, really generous, fifty mm-hmm. percent of the people have common sense. Right. Well, I heard Einstein had said that people use between three to eight percent of their brains, and eight percent obviously would be the geniuses. Imagine what it would be like if we, that was really accurate, and and people could a- access more than you know the the eight percent. That was the premise of that movie, Lucy. Did you ever see that movie, Lucy? No. It was a movie with, was it Scarlett Johansson? Yeah, Scarlett Johansson plays this woman who gets a hold of this drug uh, accidentally. She's like involved in some sort of drug trade thing that goes sour, and she gets a hold of this drug accidentally that turns her into a person that can use 100% of their mind. She becomes like a, a god. Oh. It's a really wild movie with Morgan Freeman. I think I saw this. It's great. It's fun. It's really fun. It's really interesting. Mm. It's just, it's like kind of like a superhero movie. But uh, it has a, I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but it's a great movie. If you haven't seen it, go check it out. Hmm. But the idea of using only like 7 or 8% of your brain, I think that's not real. I think they used to think that at one point in time, but now they don't believe, they think there's different parts of the brain or for different things. And their understanding of the brain is still, relatively speaking, yeah. kind of, they don't know really a lot of like what's going on in there. They, they know specific areas of the brain 
create memories or, or was where you store memories and motor skills and they know that like when you get injuries to specific areas of the brain that's where uh, there's problems and they can sort of isolate that but they I don't think they think you use only seven or eight percent of your brain anymore mm. well right? that's Einstein's quotes I, I would probably tend to go did Einstein say that yeah he did you only use, maybe he was being like I mean um, I didn't make that up right I know, but people say that. It's one of those things. I mean, it's in that movie, Lucy. That's why I said that. Yeah. And even in the that's movie, Lucy, said. when they said that, I'm like, I don't think that's true. I think that's uh Well, I don't feel like I use 100% of my brain. I can tell you that much. Well, I don't think anybody does. Yeah. But it's like, what does that mean? Using your brain. Your brain varies with how tired you are. Or what it with, all Whether does. you're sick, whether you're stressed out, mm -hmm. whether you're at peace, whether you've exercised, whether you're in love, whether you're you know happy with your life. Your brain varies constantly depending on how many things it has to think about. Mm -hmm. That's why I love the sensory deprivation tank, that thing mm -hmm. that we, we talked about earlier. Yeah. That, altered states. Yeah, yeah, that the ability to like separate yourself from as much physical input as possible is pretty amazing in the way your brain can function. Okay, here it says, others have claimed that Einstein attributed his intellectual giftedness and to be able to use more than 10% of his brain, but this is itself a myth. Another possible source of the 10% myth is neurosurgeon Wilder Penfield's discovery in 1930 of a silent cortex brain areas that appear to have no function when he stimulated them with electricity. We now know today that these are area that these areas are functional. Hmm. Okay, so it was just a I think it was just a thing that people used to say. Where does the myth originate? No one knows for sure. Popular theory is the journalist Lowell Thomas helped spread its myth in his preface to Dale Carnegie's blockbuster self-help book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. There it is. So he misquoted the brilliant American psychologist William James as saying that the average person specifically develops only 10% of his latent mental ability. Okay, so it's just a misquote. Fuck him, man. Fuck him, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But we all know that y your brain, or at least your mind, like the way you think, works better if you're feeling good and if you're healthy. Sure. And, and if a person's constantly whacked out. On coke, it's probably not so good for the way you think and live your life. No. <laughs> Are you happier now? I think so. I, I, I think what makes me happy is different, Joe. It's, uh, you know, it's relative. I think when you're around people that, that are, are complaining all the time, you know, you're going to want to either help them or if they don't want help and they keep complaining, you need to kind of change your address. Yeah. You know? Has that been like a... A consistent formula for you in terms of like living your life in a happier way just get rid of the people that suck no because there wasn't that many people uh, I think what uh, needed to happen for me was just to kind of get my priorities in order and to uh, learn a little bit more about what I'm doing that's right and and stuff that uh, could be better you know in, in all areas you know with with uh, being a husband being a dad being a friend being a, a leader you know, it's it's evolved to have an organization this big. You know, mm -hmm. um, so there's a lot of stuff there, and and I think that you know the the cancer was a lot of perspective, and um, you know some people can have chronic perspective loss uh, with the music industry 
you know, the uh, just how extorted, how distorted things are mm-hmm. from reality. And, and um, you know, I, I guess uh, as I started to get healthier with the, the cancer and the success of everything now, it's making me want to um, help people more. I've been saying this in some of my interviews lately about being more philanthropic with some of the younger bands that reach out for advice and stuff. I mean, you can't teach, you know, uh, some people... You just can't. But uh, I like to uh, help when I can if they ask. But you can teach the ones who you can. Yeah. If, if that, they want to learn. Right. But but there's enough of them out there that it really does make a difference, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a lot of people out there that, that, that want to learn that are just looking for somebody in their life. Like me, man, I was searching for a male role model since my dad was gone. My two brother-in-laws were both dealing with their own kids. You know, how weird is that to go over and have to spank somebody else's kid? <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, it was weird. When you're um, thinking back on the moment where you got cancer and like the shift in your mindset because of that, like w- other than being philanthropic, what what how did it alter the way your your perspective was? Well, I think you tend to uh, look at the calendar a little different. You know, I, I never really looked at it like. I've got such and such amount of days left to live. Uh, I've always tried to look at my life as uh, every day is a gift and, and um, you know, just try my best to, to, you know, go home, not have made any trouble in anybody's life. So I heard this saying a long time ago. Somebody was saying it in a, in a meeting, and he said that if, if you meet three assholes in one day, chances are one of them's you. <laughs> and uh, I thought, you know, I don't like that saying, so I'm going to not meet any assholes today. <laughs> and uh, you'd be surprised how it works if you, you know, you, you just kind of take a step back sometimes. Right. And uh, people don't always need to know what you're thinking. Yeah, that's true. The, yeah, you, <laughs> you can avoid conflict. <laughs> I had to learn that. That's something to learn in life, that right. you, you can avoid and you're, you're going to create more by yeah. talking. Right. It's like that saying the cops say, you have the right to remain silent. Yes. I think more people should say that. (laughs) Anything you say can and will be held against you. Yeah. Yeah, When you're um, experiencing a a giant health scare, that's generally, for a lot of people, that's a moment where you either wake up or you go further to sleep. Mm. And some people like yourself chose to change, chose to like th- see things differently. Mm-hmm. I think that's great. I thought. I wasn't going to take it lying down, although um, I, I know that uh, it could have been a lot worse. I caught it early, and I did everything the doctors said. So, what were the symptoms? Uh, it was a tumor on uh, in my throat from, uh, uh, it was on this side and the back of my tongue. And uh, inversely, the lymph nodes down here had been affected. And so they were swollen? Two of them were affected here, and then the tumor was on my tongue up here. And they didn't have to take the tumor out. Um, they hit it so hard with the radiation that uh, I think I had 31 treatments, I think you said I had, something like that. Um, uh, I think I had 13 doses of chemo. It was really, really heavy, and we got it in a short period of time. You know, that much over a long, long period of time is... I guess not that bad, but, you know, we really wanted to hit it and make sure that we didn't have to go in there and start cutting things. How did the chemo affect you? I had two bad days, Joe, where I was thrown up. We were in the studio, and I got up to go to work and just kind of felt nauseous. Fortunately, my doctors were great, and um, 
I had some uh, additional medication for nausea, and I took that. I threw up a little bit, and then the second day that happened, um, kind of the same drill, and that was it. You know, I had I had icky days, but there were no other, you know, rough days. It was just those two rough days. Everything else was pretty, pretty. Um, I'll get through it, kind of a thing. Just you know. not comfortable, but not horrific. Yeah, just I mean, it felt like a bad uh, Taco Tuesday the next morning. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, so I, I guess I just, uh, um, you know, during the course of it, with all of the medication coursing through your body, you know, uh, the doctors are trying to kill off a big part of what's wrong inside of you and mm. so your body's going like hey what is what, what's going on here so eating became uh, uh, a chore I still can't eat very well because the spices I was drinking that that delicious drink you gave me earlier and and all I could taste was the spice in it mm. you know and so and you become more sensitive to spices spice I can't hardly have spice anymore at all really? it's, it's ruined my sushi experience it's ruined oh, my wasabi. Mexican food experience oh, no. Two of my favorite foods, and I can't do it anymore because I, I take hot as, ah. Oh, wow. So that's been the big, sh- just a shift in taste buds. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like using mace for banaca, you know. It's, really? It, it, my mouth just goes nuts. Wow. And were you allowed to exercise during this time? Yeah, if I wanted to, I was still doing jujitsu. Really? While you were getting chemo? Yeah. yeah. Wow. How did yeah. it affect you on the mats? Uh, well, I wasn't really, I mean, I wasn't rolling really hard with anybody. Um, I think this happened. Were you just drilling while yeah, that was and happening? Yeah, and it was still early enough um, where where I, I think I was still a blue belt at the time, or, or I may have just been ready to get my blue belt um, when this happened. So I know I got my blue belt when I went to Europe uh, two two times ago. So... I don't remember. Did that, you, that's one of the bummers is that there's some, some gray spots where memories are they're coming back, but they're, they're not really 100% right now. Was that from chemo, you think? I don't know. You put your head in a microwave, you know, oh, right. see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not like the comic books. No. Where people come out with powers. Well, you know, I, I, uh, I wish I had powers. You know, the funny thing is, is that I went in there to have the little mask put on when they clamp your head down because you can't move your head around when you're doing the radiation. They don't want to miss with those lasers. So your head's all clamped down in this piece of plastic. And they said, well, we got to heat the plastic up and you're going to sit there for 15 minutes. And I'm thinking, I can't sit anywhere for 15 minutes and not move. So I said, okay, I'll try it. So I sit down, they click everything in, and a drip of water, because the mask is all wet, <laughs> drips down my scalp into my ear. And it was like I had a boreworm going into my brain. All I could think about was that water dripping into my ear. I couldn't handle it. I said, I got to come back. So I told him, I said, there's no way I can do this and sit here for 15 minutes. I just can't do it. I have claustrophobia. And, you know, whenever I do those CAT scans and stuff, I have to be knocked out to do that. So I finally got it done. But, uh, yeah, it was, it was a trying situation, man. You don't really know uh, how involved all the technology is until you have to go through it now because it's gotten so much more advanced. When I think about stuff you would see on TV, you would see people that had cancer, they were bald or skinny and you know, you don't you don't see how the medication and the techniques have improved. I didn't lose any hair. I I uh, like I said I only had two bad days. That's but, amazing. 
that's amazing that they've advanced to that form. And isn't it, isn't it also amazing that just a drip of water will fuck with you so hard? Like that's Chinese water, water torture, torture, right? Yep. They make people lay there and just drip water on their head, mm-hmm. which is so crazy that that bothers us so much. Such a weird thing about the human mind and human senses. Because if you're walking in the rain, it doesn't really bother you at all. You would think that that would be excruciating. It'd be yeah. impossible to deal with. Right. But if you're walking in the rain, you're like, ah, I'm fucking wet, whatever. Right. It just sucks. But so, And maybe nice. Might be nice. Might be a hot day and it rains out and it feels good. The, mat, the, the, the thing about the mind and the, the senses that a drip of water can fuck with you that hard is crazy. Yeah, it did. Especially if you're a person that freaks out about closed spaces. A lot of people ask me that about the sensory deprivation tank. They're like, oh, man, I've, I'm claustrophobic. I don't mm-hmm. know if I could do that. I'm like, mm-hmm. I think you can because it's not like you can't get out easy. There's mm-hmm. a door right there. Yeah. Just get into it for a little bit, get comfortable with it, and then do a little bit more next time, a little bit more. And then after a while, your body gets accustomed. Mm-hmm. It took me like a year to get used to like what you're doing when you lay in there. Mm-hmm. That you you're you know just you're just gonna just chill, just chill. Mm-hmm. This is what you do now, and so now I can just do it. I could just get in there. But I remember when I, it's like the cold plunge, the same kind of thing. Yeah, you that, first I don't get think in I could do that. I don't think say I could that, do that. You say that, but you could. Yeah. I guarantee you could. If I was thrown off a boat in Alaska, maybe I don't know. You could do it. <laughs> People say they couldn't do it, but you could do it. You could do it for ten seconds, right? If you could do it for ten seconds, you could do it for a minute. We do the cryogenic chamber down by our dojo there there's a place you go into but it's not the same no it's not the same but it's still great yeah if you can do uh cryotherapy i used to do cryotherapy in woodland hills yeah. uh cryo healthcare it was great you go in there for three minutes you three wear minutes, like a yeah. face mask and gloves and i would just listen to queen i listened to uh dragon attack because ah. it do 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 i just move around you know, it was just like that was my uh, I'm freezing my dick off song. Yeah, so yeah, I always yeah, listen yeah, to that yeah, when yeah. I would go in there. I hated that. <laughs> it was cool though because they could play music in there and you know, it's it's uh three minutes. You could do it. Yeah. But uh you'd get out of there, man. you it took so long for your body to warm back up, but man did you feel good. Yeah, going outside has always been great. Yeah. Going it outside, feels so yeah. good. Yeah. It makes yeah. the sun feel amazing. Yeah, it does. But it's uh super good for you. We were talking earlier about uh sauna too. We we're talking about doing that. Uh, you know that we have one here, and that mm-hmm. you have one, but you just haven't haven't been like uh, on like a regular use of it. You don't. Well, really I don't know, know the exactly proper way to use do. it. I know in Finland that they swear by sauna, and that you yeah. have to do a hot cold thing, or that you have to be so hydrated or not hydrated, or you know. I just I want to do it right. If I go in there, I don't want to just fall asleep in a sauna and come out weighing thirty pounds. You, you know? won't. You won't fall asleep, guaranteed. It's too uncomfortable. Yeah. But um, just yeah, hydration's key. Do you uh, do you take any electrolyte supplements or anything like that? Uh, let's see. What do I take? I take so much uh, nutrients and supplements. Um, do you? Yeah. Oh, a that's lot, great. A lot. Uh, I take DHEA, pregnenolol, whatever I think it is. Do you take anything like Liquid IV? Do you know what that stuff is? I've had uh, I've had that before. Yeah. Yeah. The, or uh, Element. Those are all really good. It's uh, hydration supplements. You just yeah. add them to water. And there's a bunch of uh, electrolytes in there. It's really good. I for did uh, the thing where you go to. Um, a doctor's office and they hook you up an IV. And, oh, okay. And, uh, yeah. One of the things was they were radiating your blood. Um, your your blood would come out and it would go into this machine. And, oh, that's very and different. <laughs> it was really advanced. And there was another one you would go in there and you'd get like a, a vitamin cocktail. And, They're radiating your blood? Yeah. Uh, it was uh, some crazy technique. I can't remember what, what it was. Um, we, we were just starting to get it 
uh, we were just starting to do it right when COVID hit, and then the guy closed his practice. Have you heard of that, Jamie? Yeah, they take your what is blood. The, what's the benefit of it? Cleaning your blood. Clean it? They, they just had something, and it went through this crazy machine, and it would spin around. Like an ozone or something? Like what well, were it, they... wasn't, it wasn't like, you know, one of those. I've heard uh, that before. You know, you weren't spinning it for, you know, stem cell stuff or like that. I just think Like PRP, were, right, yeah. Yeah. But they would take it and treat it and then put it back in your body? I don't think it ever really actually... Well, it came out to go through the machine, so, but I don't think that there was ever really uh, leaving you, per se, because there was a connection made. And, right. And it wasn't like they took it out of you and took it someplace else and came back and So it, it sort of you. pumps into the machine and pumps back into your yeah, body? Yeah, and it went past this crazy yeah. light. You know, so. Okay, so some sort of... Uh, wasn't that what they were talking about with... Uh, with COVID and some other things that they had they had exposed it to ultraviolet light and that you could they were they were taking uh, one of the therapies that they were considering is that they were going to put UV light into people's lungs like they were going to like anesthetize them or yeah, I just heard about this too yeah they were going to put them under and then they were going to use UV light on their lungs to kill uh, not just COVID but other things you ultraviolet blood treatment there it is ultraviolet blood treatment is um, simple intravenous therapy which a small amount of blood is drawn from the patient's body through ultraviolet through an ultraviolet light emitting machine and then reintroduced to their system the uv light acts as a, a cell cleanser killing bacteria and viruses in the bloodstream unhealthy cells absorb five times as much photonic energy and die off while healthy cells remain intact and the blood gains oxygen. The effect is a vaccination-like response in which patients' immune systems uh, is activated to counter the specific virus or bacteria the body is trying to defeat. In our clinical experience, this treatment has been highly effective against viral infections. Is this a, is this a real thing? Born clinic? But, hmm... Um, why don't you Google ultraviolet blood treatment debunked? <laughs> Google debunked. Um, it sounds interesting. What a great thing that would be. That if every time you had a virus, just go and get hooked up to this machine. It would just clean you out real quick. <laughs> they do know that the, these viruses, that many viruses, rather, are killed uh, with the introduction of ultraviolet light. Yeah. That's why they have these um, Let things be called, light. Have you ever heard of a SteriPen? Uh, explain. A SteriPen is something that uh, hikers and uh, uh, guys who go into the, the backcountry for multiple days at a time, they need mm -hmm. water sources. There's a thing called a SteriPen, and you can literally take water from a lake, and then Put you the and dunk then this SteriPen in, and you there's a specific amount of time that you expose the UV light to the water, and mm -hmm. it kills all the bacteria in the water. So you can drink it. Yeah, so you can drink it. Yeah. So Google that, SteriPen. All we've got, we've got a bunch guys. of stuff like that. When we were living in Fallbrook, we had a bunch of uh, stuff for water problems. Here it is. Fact check, UV light is not an accepted medical treatment. Mm. The cure that time forgot. Was it So what, did, it legit? did we just wake up today to debunk all Dave's theories or what? No, it's not debunking theories. It's just when we bring up something, we have to make well, sure. I don't even know that's what he was talking about to be the first. I mean, I just brought it up. No, that's right. Thinking it, if that know, was the yeah. thing he was talking about. But um, that SteriPen thing is 100% legit. Yeah. I, know, I know they absolutely do use that. And I know they have uh, used UV light to kill bacteria and viruses. But uh, the SteriPen thing... 
how does that thing work? Google that, SteriPan. It's like the military pens. You can drink ocean water with the desalination stuff, and, and you can take like crazy sewage water and make it drinkable. I, I don't think that's the same pen you're talking about, but I know they got a lot of stuff like that, the desalination. Yeah, things. there it is. UV water purifier. It's pretty fucking wild, it, just with light. So if you see it, how it's used there, they just dunk that sucker in the, in the water, and it kills everything, which is wild. You just have this little pen that you dunk into a Nalgene bottle filled with pond water, and you could drink that shit. Yeah. It's very interesting. Yeah. So did you find a good benefit when you did that, the, the, the blood thing? Happy wife, happy life. It made your wife happy? Because <laughs> I went with her. Oh. <laughs> yeah. But did you feel better after doing that treatment? I'm sure I did a little bit, but I think, you know, the going with her was, was better than, than not, you know. Right. It, it was uh, a fun thing to do for us to just, you know, do health together. You know, you're married, and uh, I'm sure your wife is probably very happy, uh, very healthy. And, and uh, I, I think, you know, it's, it's a good thing when you can um, do stuff like that with your significant other um, for sure. Find things outside of the norm that you guys have in common that you like to do. Um, health is something that's really important with us. Pam's been, um, you know, my Florence Nightingale when, when it came down to the whole uh, illness and, and helping me with, uh, you know, not only uh, my current issues with, uh, you know, the longevity uh, and, and, you know, the continued maintenance that I'm mm -hmm. under for uh, my, my skeleton um, that's been damaged from the fusion and all the other stuff that I've had done to my body. Um, and, and just, you know, being, being a great moral support, um, you know, there's times we fight. Yeah, I think every couple does. And um, we've been married over 30 years, which is a huge accomplishment. That is. You know, especially, Congratulations. Especially when you think about uh, some of the people that um, – in the music business, I can't think of a lot that I know that have been married that long. Alice Cooper is my godfather. He's been married 27 years, I think. So, um, yeah, you don't find a lot of people that have been married for a, a, a long, long time. You don't find a lot of people that are married a long time in regular jobs. Yeah. But in rock and roll, I'm sure it's yeah. way smaller. Well, that probably had a lot to do with uh, Britney Spears and that Kevin Federline 45-second marriage that they did in Las Vegas so many years ago. And, and uh, That had to do with it? You think that's I, I, th I think what happens when you have a bunch of little impressionable uh, fans that are listening to a band and, and uh, the uh, front person or, or the leader of the band does stuff, uh, absolutely right that uh, people can be influenced. Do they get influenced? Do I think that people went out and just got married and got divorced right away? because of that no but i think that the institute of marriage has been cheapened from people not taking it seriously you know if you're going to marry somebody it's supposed to be your 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 soulmate you know um you see beautiful things in nature like those eagles in their death spiral when they're mating and, and is that beautiful <laughs> I, I think the flying and and you know a lot of like the courting that you see these other uh birds and, and animals and stuff when they they change their color to, yeah to attract me appeal to the mates so, yeah. yeah that to me is really neat I, I i've often wondered why in the animal kingdom that the males are so much more uh exotic looking than the females it's it's uh interesting but there's so many uh different things you know when for for me when i look at how my relationship with pam is because i've tried to really really um be in the marriage and in the uh the parenting when we would come home from tour i'd be gone so long that you know she obviously had to 
leak over into being the dad every once in a while, which she didn't like. And, and, you know, I don't think the kids liked it either. So when I came home, instead of coming home and saying, okay, this is how it is, this is my way, I had to really quickly ascertain everything and see, you know, what, what's going on and to help. If I didn't like what was going on, I needed to address that privately and not right. in front of the kids and make sure that we were, you know, we were uh, properly aligned, that we were equal, e- evenly yoked, you know what I mean? So that if, if I come home, because one time I came home and Justice had said something really awful to his mom and I spanked him on the butt and his mom goes, or he goes, you didn't give me many chances. And I went, okay, your mom's busted. (laughs) And, you know, um, I, I, uh, I wasn't a spanker uh, with my kids. You know, they they got spanking a couple times, but you know that that was it, it was not something that was uh, done a lot in our house because I'd been spanked so much as a kid. But um, I I, uh, I think about when when you know you have two parents and and one's gone for so long, especially you know in the military too. You know, you come home and you've got to learn that family dynamic. That's why it gets so difficult because one person has to make do, and then someone else comes in and and maybe screws everything up, maybe doesn't. Right. You know, so that's the dilemma of being on tour for so long right? yeah it is you have to i remember the guys in iron maiden there was a guy that was their tour manager i think his name was uh, dickie bell i think he was their tour manager and he would come home from touring and and this is a, a, a known thing with the tour with those guys from maiden that the guy would go to a hotel and stay there for a week after every tour just to detox from being on tour and and i get it you know when i go home the last thing i want to do is pick up my phone and not get room service mm. spanking is a very controversial topic with people it is with a lot of a them, lot yeah. of people don't believe it's uh ever justified yeah. in any way you know i'm kind of on the fence about that because I, I think there's a fine line between spanking someone and beating them yeah you know and it's like when i lived in florida when i was a kid i got paddled once at school they yeah used to, they used me to too hit you at school me too me and this kid got in a fight and we both went to the principal's office you got a swat and I, we got one swat on the butt and it hurt yep it hurt and it was humiliating it was humiliating that a man like makes you bend over and whacks you on the ass. I don't think it was good though. I don't think it's a smart thing, and I don't think they do it anymore. But you know, I get what they were trying to do. They were they had order. I guarantee you that they definitely had order in the class because of that. That mm. threat of paddling was real. Right. Well, I guess the motive behind it is is what's important. If you discipline with anger, then you're not disciplining because disciplining is supposed to be a conjunction of a discipline um, and teaching. So if you're disciplining your child, you're supposed to teach them. You're not supposed to, to hit them. So right. one of the things I've always said, anybody asks me about you know advice for parents, I, I always say, kiss your wife goodnight. I tell her you love her. Don't ever uh, discipline your kids in anger. And... Um, Kids need structure. And they do you need... think that spanking is still good? Do you still believe in it? Do I... Like if you were to do it all over again, if would I... you spank kids? Well, it depends on what it's about. You know, Lecter never got spanked. So, I mean, she uh, was a child that could be reasoned with. And um, Justice only got, uh, like I said, spanked a couple times. And, and um, you know, it, he, he was... Uh, um, there was a lot of stuff that was going on, uh, behavioral stuff that, that Justice was struggling with because I wasn't there. So um, I know that um, the family dynamic really needs to have two parents there. I mean, that it takes a village thing, that quote, whatever the saying, idiom, cliche, epithet. Um, 
That's true. You need to have more than just one person parenting. You need you need help sometimes because the parents will get exhausted and overwhelmed, and sometimes you need someone to just step in for a second and say, "I got this." You know, I think um, people are missing the village these days. You know, there, there used to be a thing where people would help with each other's children as well. You, mm-hmm. Children would learn from other parents as right. well. The other men in the tribe, yeah. you know, yeah. um, and, and if the dad couldn't handle a boy, then another dad would come along and find out what the interests were. And, you know, um, what was that? Is that lightning? Jeez. Yeah. That was loud. This is. They ooh. agree. Yeah. They the, agree. The Lord has spoken. Um, you know, just, just to come alongside people, you know, for me, I think part of the only reason that I made it was because I did have people come alongside and, and did have them uh, speak into my life, you know, and, and it's, it is difficult when you've got someone who's not your dad or, or your mom, uh, you know, trying to tell you how to do things. You want to say, you're not my dad. <laughs> well, that's one of the things that really helps young men with martial arts is to find uh these figures, these male senseis and martial arts instructors and that they look up to that, that have like great morals and ethics and, and, and talk about things in Mm -hmm. front of the class. And when you're a kid and you admire your instructor so much, Mm -hmm. and it's, it's such an important role model and Mm -hmm. such an important authority figure that has a great benefit on kids too, in terms of like ability to uh, recognize the importance of discipline and, 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 and being able to do things that make that person proud of your behavior right. and the way you conduct yourself and, and also your work ethic. Right, right, right. Well, I, my work ethic changed tremendously once I started working with Sensei Benny. You know, um, also my ability to be able to tolerate people when, when they would say stuff to me that I didn't want to necessarily hear, you know, because before, uh, you know, I, I, people would say sit down and I would sit down, but on the inside I was standing up, you know. Right. And, and uh Nowadays, it's like I I, uh, I don't need to be in the front row. Uh, I can I can enjoy the show just as much from the second or third row. Don't you, you know? think that benefit that comes from martial arts training also is in the exertion itself? There's something about the explosive nature of martial arts, like hitting the bag, hitting pads, sparring, all that stuff mm-hmm. that it, it exhausts all of this need for aggression that a lot of young men unfortunately have. Like, mm-hmm in our genes. Right, right. And that, you can get that out and it makes you a more reasonable, polite person. Yeah. Yeah. I just was talking to Justice when we were coming back from class the other day. Um, he He's uh, just started training with uh, Professor Reggie. He's got his first stripe, so he's really excited about it. And, and I said, see, the thing, son, is that you never know who you're going to come across who's going to have more knowledge than you. And right now, you know that as a white belt, with even just one stripe, you really don't know very much at all. And that um, you never know when you're going to come across somebody who may look like they're just somebody that you can push around and you say the wrong thing. And just like that one fighter down in Brazil who had tragically lost his life. I can't remember what his name was, but Professor Richard was talking oh, about Leandro that Oh, Leandro Lowe. Yeah, yeah Lowe. that's terrible, terrible yeah. story. Yeah, I mean, that's the reality of violence, right? Yeah. And uh, avoid it whenever possible. Absolutely. And I, I really do believe that for young men in particular, that it's uh, great to find some sort of an outlet in that way where you can express all those, uh, the, all the anger and this, all the shit that just comes with being a man. Mm-hmm. You, can, you can get that out in training and it makes you so much more reasonable right. in, in regular life. Right. It's right. a giant benefit. How did you uh, wind up hurting your neck? 
Is that from music? From, from it was from headbanging. Head really? uh, yeah, I, I had been headbanging for so long. Um, I got degenerative disc disease in my neck, and then I have. Uh, there's two forms of um, stenosis. Stenosis. There's the one where the bone closes in on the nerve, and then there's the other one where the nerve swells up inside of the hole. Mm. So I have both of those, and and they Oof. were going to do. A, I think it's called a phrenectomy or something like that. A phrenectomy or something where they go back in and they bore a hole around the nerve and I said no way I was in the emergency room and I was um, it was uh, right near my birthday and and we were supposed to play Yankee Stadium with the big four and um, I couldn't move my arm it had frozen and I went in and the guy said you need emergency surgery right now you're probably not going to walk again so I said okay and I told my manager at the time this guy named Mark Edelman we were managed by Irving Azoff's group up in Hollywood and and uh, he called up and told Metallica's management at, that I needed emergency surgery on my spine or that I wouldn't um, be able to probably play or walk again. And the guy called me a pussy. <laughs> and I thought, Jesus oh, Christ. boy. Jesus Christ. Yeah. What a bad manager. Yeah. So oh, I, my God. I, uh, I, um, <laughs> they gave me a shot. They, they fixed me up. I flew out there. I drove to the stage in a golf cart with a neck brace on. All over the stage, there was uh, paper that said, don't headbang, because my neck was barely holding on. And then I went home, and I, I went to Santa uh, uh, Marina del Rey, I should say, and had my, my neck fused together. Took a long time. I still have that neck brace. I need it from uh, time to time because, you know, my neck kind of leans forward a little bit. All the head banging and stuff has made these muscles in here really disproportionate because they had to go through the front in order to get to the bone here. And this muscle in the front is much like a corset. Mm-hmm. So they pulled it aside, and this side had to come across farther because they had to go in here. So when all these muscles grew back, they kind of grew in sideways, and then they had to grow over. So there's all this you know, weird stuff. These two lines coming down right here are, are a byproduct of trying to stretch a lot. Mm. You know, and, and I don't mind about getting old, but I do mind getting stiff. Do you do exercises for your neck to mm-hmm. compensate for yeah. it? What do you do? Yeah, well, I have a couple of things. I have a, a traction device that you stick your head in, you sit down, and it pulls it up yeah, like I've this. Yeah, I've got one of those. And then I've got a rack that you lay on and your neck gets slid that way. I've mm-hmm. got another uh, rack that you put on and you pump it up and the front goes yeah. up. And then I got another one that um, I've got one of those guns like you have at the front door, the hyper gun, hypervolt mm-hmm. gun. Yeah. Those are very, very, very helpful. Guns. Yeah. 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 So, have you ever done stem cell therapies on your neck at all? Not yet. No? Not yet. I've been trying to see what's going to uh, happen with you know where where we're at if you know with my whole situation with the cancer before I start taking right. on any that more new sense. surgeries or anything. Have you ever used a device called the Iron Neck? Have you ever heard of that? Never heard of it. It's a well. The good thing about it is you're not articulating those discs. You're not moving them, mm-hmm. but it still strengthens your neck. You put it on your head like a halo, and it has a bungee cord that attaches off the halo, and you vary the amount of tension on the bungee cord based on like the position you are mm-hmm. in relationship to where it's connected. Mm-hmm. So if you pull back further, it's more tension. You're just using your head like this? No, you don't bend your hand back and forth at all. You turn it sideways like this. There it is right there. See that thing like there? We'll give you one. We have one here if you want it. Excellent. Yeah. I'll take so it. what you do is you pull. See so Fashion. see how his muscles are engaged? Yeah. And then he's going to turn to his right shoulder and turn to his left shoulder. And as you do that, it uh, strengthens the muscles on the neck, but without bending your neck forward and back. So if you have, you know, from head banging, I'm sure those that area gets irritated very easily. Yeah. 
bending forward and in the back. back in the back is hot so what this does is it strengthens your neck while it's in a straight posture so you do this and this with it on so it's strengthening the neck but it's see how he's using it see there oh yeah see that's that's oh, actually right here at the wow. Honor gym that's here in austin um so as he's doing that the tension on the actual halo itself you vary so in the beginning like you could do it very easily and build up to it and then eventually you can get it to where see that thing as you adjust that little that dial thing. that so red dial is it like a trx2 where you're leaning out and increases the yes 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 and also because it's a bungee cord it's a direct connection to uh the the amount of tension is just directly proportionate to wow, how far that. you pull that it backwards crazy. yeah it's great so see how he's doing this that's uh they call that yeah. the stevie ray <laughs> Or the Ray Charles, rather, excuse yeah. me. Yeah, I meant Ray Charles. So as you, because, uh, you know, Ray Charles used to move his head like yeah. that. Um, so as he's doing that, he's strengthening all the muscles in his neck, but he's not putting undue stress in a forward That's and backward head, way. Yeah. yeah. There's a bunch of different exercises you could do with it. But there's videos online. We'll, we'll give you one of those. Beautiful. It'll help you. But Thank you. When anybody has a fucked up neck, I always have a lot of advice because I've, I've gone through a lot of shit with my neck and luckily uh figured out ways to strengthen it and make it much better but that's just a sort of uh common thread in jujitsu so many people in jujitsu wind up with fucked up discs you know the first the first couple of months that i trained i had so many injuries i sprained my right elbow and then i had ribs on both sides that got um, separated beat yeah. up pretty but they didn't break i don't think they I don't, I don't know what happened to them but they hurt a lot of times you get the tear in between the two ribs mm -hmm. as you know they'll get pushed forward and, and you'll get injuries inside the ribs that's really mm -hmm. common well, i was just say uh, when i started i was you know obviously uh not in great health and and uh not very flexible either so uh, i think a lot of that happened when you know we were doing some tosses and i would grab on because i didn't mm. want to go flying through the air i wasn't comfortable you know hitting the mat yet and i used to do that with with uh you time i you know i just i gotten out of it and i'd forgotten so it's also age my brother yeah it is <laughs> uh, cocoon yeah father time beats us all yeah there's no if ands or buts about that yeah. but i i love the fact that i mean we were 58 when you started jujitsu somewhere around that i think range. so yeah that's amazing. about 57 maybe yeah. and you've got to purple belt which means you can get to black belt yeah once you get to purple belt you can get to black belt yeah it's just a matter of time and effort and you know it's the hump between white and blue, that's the big hump. That's what that's what Professor Reggie told me. He said that most people quit at that part right there. And I was so thinking, hard. God, that's the part where I'm the most angry that I want to get through, you know. And and uh, I've since changed my mind because I looked back and I remember Sensei Benny saying, you don't digest, you just chew. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean? He goes, you gobble. You just chew. You don't digest the material. And I went, okay, okay, I'm slowing down now. Because I just wanted to train every day with him. Mm -hmm. and, and he would say, no, you need to take a day off. You need to take two days off, whatever. So, Well, there's a thing in learning White uh, technique in particular with any kind of martial art that's very important to learn it correctly. Because you can learn bad paths. And then those paths, even if you get past them, when you get tired, when you get fatigued, or when you're under stress, you'll revert to your earliest teachings. Yeah, to the bad tactics. Yeah. yeah. I, when I was teaching Taekwondo, I had a really hard time trying to teach people that had learned something the wrong way already. Yeah. So they they threw kicks, but they didn't have the right amount of power because they weren't using their hips properly. So right. I try to like express, 
Like you've got to, there's a way to articulate your hips. You're not doing that. You're just kicking with your leg. Mm-hmm. And they, when they would get tired or when. Just flap it out there. Or they get nervous if they were competing. Mm-hmm. They would, it would just fall apart. And mm-hmm. they would go right back to the earliest teaching, which is really, to me, ingrained early on in my mind. You got to learn something right the first time. Yes. You don't want to unlearn shit. No. It's very hard. Like when you're talking about guitar, it's very hard for people to unlearn. Like once you learn something, you. I guess the guitar doesn't really matter because some of the greats, like Hendrix, I think, didn't he learn? Wasn't he self-taught as well? You know, I don't know. I, I'm not exactly sure. But uh, God, I didn't know you're such a big Hendrix fan. Oh, I love him. That's why there's posters of him everywhere. When yeah. I when I was a kid, I just was blown away when I would when I I don't remember what the first song I listened to, but the sounds that this guy was making with his guitar, I was like, this is insane. Yeah, yeah. It's like, and, and as, as I was saying before about music, one of the things that's so fascinating to me is that. It's your someone's expressing their creativity through these sounds, and these sounds literally change the way you feel. They 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 do something to you that just excites all of your nerves and all of your sensations to this point where it, it's it's a great song that comes on at the right time is an amazing drug. Mm, it really sure is. is. It's yeah. a drug that your mind produces based on someone else's creativity. Yeah, pick you out, pull you out. Mm. Yeah. That's why I named this the Joe Rogan Experience. It's based on the Jim Harris oh, Experience. That's excellent. That's excellent. <laughs> yeah, it just yeah. it seemed like the only name for it at the time. But uh, it's perfect. Yeah, we're we're very fortunate, and especially today, that you know someone can tell you about a song and you can have access to it almost instantaneously. Mm-hmm. You know, and just pull it up on your phone, and then bam, next thing you know, you're listening to it in your car. It's like mm-hmm. it's a wild time for the consumption of other people's work. Whoever thought. Captain Kirk would have all that stuff on his wrist at one day. Oh, dude, screw Captain Kirk. What about Dick Tracy with the, the yeah. watch that? Uh, calling Dick Tracy, calling Dick we Tracy. We thought that was so impossible. Now it's 100% normal. No kidding. There's yeah. so many people out there with Apple Watch. I have friends that wear an Apple Watch when they go out, and they uh. don't even bring their phone. They just have like earphones, like uh, earbuds. Yeah. So they'll put earbuds on and they'll talk through their goddamn Apple Watch. That's, yeah, yeah. You know, I, that's one of the things I, I can't stand is going out to dinner with people and they'd sit on their phone across from you. It's a you bummer. Know? Well, yeah. I think my one of my friends who does it says that this makes me not look at my phone. I'm not looking at my phone, but if someone needs to call me, I could still talk to them on my on my watch, which is that's justification of abuse. It, it is, but it's at least he's not like on Instagram, yeah. checking Facebook all day. Mm-hmm. Like you're, he's just using the watch mm-hmm. and making phone calls and stuff. It's probably a little better, right? If you're only getting phone calls and text messages through your watch. Yeah. You mm-hmm. ever do that, Jamie? You ever leave the house with no phone, just the watch? Then you running, <clears throat> like if I go on a run or exercise. And do you ever like make phone calls or talk to people when you're doing that? Yeah, and it's actually coming real handy. One time, I had my phone fell out of my pocket in someone's car, and I was like, "Oh fuck, how do I get a hold of them?" Uh, hopefully, this watch thing works. And like, oh, that was the first time you used it. <laughs> yeah, to call you, hey man, uh, my come back. You <laughs> 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 <Yeah>, my shit. <laughs> You, do you ever get on social media? Do you do any of that? I, I We had the very first website back in 1994 when Countdown to Extinction came out. Wow. Or no, when Euthanasia came out, and it was called Megadeth Arizona, and we had the first chat room. Really? I, yes, I remember being immersed in my uh, uh, in every waking moment of my life when that came out. There was a guy named Charles who was the webmaster, and, and we were in Telnet, and... and <laughs> All that fucking sounds, my yeah, goodness. the modem sounds. Yeah, and and so we uh, 
We were so far ahead of everybody else. Gene Simmons even said, hey, man, I want one of those band website things like Megadeth does. Wow. So, yeah, we had the first website, and, and we've tried to always be at the forefront with our, our band, with uh, you know what we're doing on, on this record is no different. We have NFTs uh, that we're going to be uh, releasing with our fans. Do you understand NFTs? Yeah, I do. And, do you? Uh, we Tell have, me. Well, I have, some, I don't I have something it. for you. Oh. A very special gift for Ooh, you. Ooh, yeah. I'm excited. Yeah, well, now that I think about it, it's, uh, I was thinking about something else because I've got some little souvenirs and stuff from touring over there, so I have a little teeny thing from the Hendrix experience. I was thinking about uh, sending it down here to put up on the wall or oh, something. Oh, fuck but, yeah. Uh, I would love that. Thank um, you. Yeah, it might not be as cool as your other things you got here. It'll but, be fucking cool as shit. Yeah, but uh, the other thing, what were we talking about? The other... Uh, what was the other thing we were talking about just now? Not to hang in the... Oh, your website. We're talking website. about social media. Uh, social media, yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay, so um, in the beginning, I did I did the Twitter stuff. I, You know, we were very, very, very active with Megadeth Arizona, which was our chat room, and then we had uh, Megadeth.com, and then we had uh, what was called um, the Diner, was what they called the chat room with, with uh, Megadeth Arizona. And um, that that lasted for a while. Then there was some woman who said she invented it all, and and um, we we kind of said, look, we don't want to be part of this website over here. We want to take Megadeth.com, and and we want you to let us free, you know, because right. the label was basically doing the the website uh, domain hosting at the time, and and I knew the future of the web. I knew what was going on with, uh, you know, the, the beginning uh, internet, and now that we're on the cusp of web 3.0, um, you know, with cyber currency and, and cryptocurrency, I mean, and, and with the NFTs, you know, we've got our, um, our NFTs are going to be launching September 13th, which is going to be my birthday, uh, consequently, and uh, we also have... Um, a lot of things that are membership oriented where all you need is a little Megadeth coin to um, hang on to and it gives you access to all kinds of other really cool things like meet and greets, concerts, uh, early ticketing, or, uh, different merchandise nobody else is going to get. So, and, and with the non-fungible tokens, we, we, um, we're, it's, it's so involved with um, everything. All I can tell you right now is I've looked at other people's uh, NFTs that they Cyber have. Army 3.0. And um, I think that. I think we're uh, a little bit farther ahead uh, from other people with their NFTs. You know, uh, the uh, Board Yacht Ape Club um, or the Board Ape Yacht Club, uh, however you say it, was was really uh, uh, a, a, a cool kind of thing in the beginning, and and it's taken on a life all of its own. And and then you know you look at the NFTs that uh, Ozzy did, the Crypto Bats. You know, a lot of people like it because it's eight uh, bit. And it looks like it's, you know, old, old school Atari kind of stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that when you do something like that, you also run the hazard, if you will, of um, somebody saying you're not doing it. Somebody else is doing it for you. So we try and be as, mm. as authentic as possible and make sure that we know what we're doing, we know what we're talking about, and we know how it's going to benefit the fans. I think people really like that in terms of like social media too. When they find out that someone's posting on social media for you mm-hmm. like and pretending that they're the band mm-hmm. or pretending you're, they're the comedian or whatever, mm-hmm. people get upset at that. Right. Well, I don't post on the Megadeth uh, socials because that's the whole band. Uh, for my own personal stuff, I do. What is your personal account? It, just Dave Mustaine. That's it. Um, uh, we did this long enough uh, uh, ago where there's no real challenges to the name and uh, the social um, uh, services, the different ones you're talking about, um, they're, they're uh, um, 
congenial enough, I don't know if this is the right word, but to work with us and make sure that, you know, hey, you've got some imposters, got Dave's name out there. It's not like, you know, Buck Owens where everybody, you know. Right, Dave Tom Smith. Pretty, it's you know, pretty distinctive. It is. It's, it's one hard of, it's a one to of a find kind another name. guy like that out there. Yeah, so so uh, that's um, that's one of the things. You know, uh, the thing I'm most excited about right now is is what we're going to be doing with, with uh, the whole uh, Web 3.0 experience for fans. But I, I don't want to see this turn into an isolation kind of thing where the fans, um, you know, they get into uh, the Web 3.0 stuff and put on their Oculus Rift helmets and start uh, going into this world and, and not coming up, you know. Um, but in the same token, it's also going to be exciting to see who's going to be able to pull off the first legit, viable, authentic concert in 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 that uh, in virtual. Yeah, in yeah. virtual. Because I mean, you know, you look at a lot of it and, and uh, stuff that people are doing, like the hologram stuff that was going, and everybody was saying like holograms, Tupac Shakur, Elvis. Oh my God, are you kidding? Right. But then when you get there in the concert and you see it, it's a little bit wanting. You well, know? also Tupac looked like a CrossFitter. Like they they made it a little too vain. They didn't really duplicate Tupac's body. They made Tupac super jacked. Oh, ha, did you of see? Of course, that? no, I didn't. Oh, let's pull it up because it's really interesting. Because like Tupac was always like a He's pretty healthy. thin, healthy guy, but in this it looked like he had done a cycle. He's on the, the weight pile. Yeah, and started fucking hitting hitting. Look at that. I mean, come on. That dude looks like Kamaru Usman. Look at his six-pack. That's yeah. incredible. Look how jacked he is in that photo down there, Jamie. Look at that. Which one's real? Look at that. Oh, that's, yeah. that's, that's the fake Tupac. But He's the, pretty skinny. But the real Tupac did not look like that. It wasn't that and built. That's a, that's a hologram? Look how jacked he is. That's not fair. Because like, if you were going to bring back Hendrix and make Hendrix look like a bodybuilder, people would be like, what are you doing? I mean, look at that. Look how jacked he is. That's like a legitimate 20 pounds heavier than Tupac really was in real life. That's crazy. That's, I, that's the first time I saw that. I didn't think silly it was going to be that. that. I thought that. it was going to look like, you know, R2-D2. Right. Like, what if they put, brought Biggie back, but they made him look like Mike Tyson? Everybody yeah. like, come yeah. on, man. Yeah. That's not what Biggie looked like. No. You, you, you can't be vain. That's the real Tupac. See, he's pretty fit, thin. Yeah, he's, he's pretty good. like in the the, the right hand corner. That one next to that, Jamie. Oh, yeah, I mean, he's that's in. Not him. That's not him. That's not him. That's not him. That's from a movie. So that's I, not him. Yeah, the pictures are getting confused. Oh, what is that? That's an actor. Oh wow, he looks a lot like Tupac. Sure did. So that's him. Okay, so that's perfect. Look at that. So he's thin. He's got six pack going on, but I mean, he does not have nearly the bulk. The the fake one was yeah. just super jacked. That's the, that's him for real life. He's pretty sh good shape. Good yeah. shape. Yeah. But like, you know, thin like a thin boxer, you know? Like yeah. someone who's fit for Fly sure. Yeah. yeah, but not like fucking super jacked like that hologram, dude. If I saw that hologram, I'd be like, "Damn, man. I wish I looked like that for real." Yeah. Getting shape, man. Time to get in shape. Yeah, there's the hologram. I mean, the hologram is fucking jacked. Yeah. But it's uh the virtual world to me, what's interesting about that is people that don't have access to your concerts can't go. I would like it as, as like a supplement thing. It'd be fucking amazing. If you had a virtual reality concert where someone 
could sit there in like the second row and see people in front of them and it feels real and they get to see you guys actually perform the actual real high definition video of you there but in a virtual space where you can move around and actually mm -hmm. watch you right in front of them. Mm -hmm. That's an amazing experience. So you're saying like set up some of those 360 cameras yeah. in, in the second row and have people Fuck be able to look yeah. all around. Yeah, that, that sounds totally doable. I know ZZ Top was doing that when they were filming themselves live but you know ZZ Top isn't a really high energy band. You would need so. a real live crowd too though. Mm -hmm. I would think you need to like do one of your real concerts and have like people with the cameras in the crowd so yeah. it feels like yeah. you're there yeah you That'd know be we, incredible. we won a clio award for um having uh, the best uh, virtual reality performance it, it wasn't about the virtual reality performance it was the best business idea and uh, this company is known for giving out awards to honda to palm olive to procter and gamble and stuff like that and and we got the award because uh, the forward and uh, extra cerebral thought process that comes from our brain trust and, and doing a 360 uh, degree virtual reality concert where they came, they got the... Is that they, this right here? Yeah. They got the CD package and the CD package came with the, uh, the uh, helmet that you had to wear. And oh. um, the, uh, what you would do is you would slide your cell phone into this helmet and then you could go through here while we were playing and you could get any position that you wanted to to watch how we were playing from there. That's and amazing. This is uh, some of the songs that had the quartet in it. So that helmet, does this 25,000 units worldwide of these helmets? Is that what that's saying? Uh, that's the CD and the uh, app. I can't remember uh, if uh, how many of these things there were, but we had... Uh, oh, that, so that was it? the thing right there I was oh. holding, yeah. And does it matter what kind There's of phone? There's the camera. Wow. No, I think it was a, I think it was a, a droid. Right. A lot of them are androids. Yeah. That's like Samsung has... Oh, there uh, it was. There it was. There, that was, that right was there? They were just showing you how to make it. Show that again, Jamie. Oh, right there. So this is the box. You take it out. You open it up. And was this like a specific droid that would do this? Because I know Samsung had a thing where when you would there buy you their there phones... Yeah, that's it. And you'd put the, the, the lens in there. Was that, wasn't that what Samsung was doing for a while, Jamie? Do you remember that? They, they had a thing that came with one of their Galaxy phones. That was like a sort of a headset type deal. Yeah, but this has all been like the Oculus has now erased right. all that stuff. But yeah, right. Yeah, there now. was an option for that for sure. Yeah, but they, I don't think they do it anymore though. Probably right? not because yeah, Oculus is so good. So do you guys have this available for things like Oculus and these? that version? I think it's sold out. I don't think they made any more of those. It was a limited edition. Um, have you thought about doing that for like HTC Vive or Oculus or any of these platforms that do virtual reality? You know, I did the very first interview that Oculus ever did. They came to my house in Fallbrook, and the guy brought a duct-taped-together um, prototype of the Oculus camera and uh, gave me the headset, and I put that in, and, and the very first scene that I ever saw was a dog walker walking dogs down the beach in San Diego because the guy had just gone there before he came to my house, and he filmed some dog walkers, and I thought, this is the coolest thing ever, and I, I think you might be able to find it online. They show this picture of me by my pond in my uh, house we used to have in Fallbrook. It's a beautiful, beautiful place, but the picture made it look like five times as big. It was really amazing. And seeing the Oculus Rift thing in its beginning stages, you know, I didn't really have a lot of 
oomph with, with my desire wanting to pursue this. I knew it was something neat. I knew it was cool. But, you know, he told me that the guy from Doom, I think it was. was John gonna, Carmack. Yeah, he yeah. was going to get involved in he that. He did. And he put like $75 million or something into the company. And, and uh, you know, because I wanted to get on on that too. And, and I don't know whatever happened. You know, we talked. I did some press for them. And the next thing you know, we've... We've got this opportunity to do the um, performance. We win an award. Gone. Now we're on to the next thing. There's a, a, a lot of really cool things you could do with those Oculus now. And one that you might enjoy as a martial artist is mm. they have boxing games. Oh, really? Yeah, they're great. And it's a surprisingly good workout mm. because you hold the hand things and then you put the helmet on and then you're in this ring mm. with like this virtual boxer, this cartoon boxer. And every time they hit you with a jab, you, your, your vision lights up. Oh, wow. Like, like you so got it's rocks. sensory, yeah. Yeah, it's really cool. It doesn't hurt, you know, obviously, but it, you, you get the sense like oh my god What's i got hit there's multiple games it's not fight camp for is oculus it? rift no fight camp is different fight camp is pretty cool too fight I camp got is, fight camp in my house it's great fight camp is essentially like um a peloton but with combat sports so you have like sensors that are on the the, the heavy bag and you have sensors that are in your gloves and then you follow along with a video that'll mm -hmm. tell you what to do and it's it's great because right. it like forces you to do what they're doing and it, you know you don't work out to your pace yeah. you work out to a trainer's pace mm -hmm. but these games there's more than one there's a ton of them there's a ton of them for archery ton of them for other things too that are that are fun to do mm -hmm. but the uh, the boxing one is a particularly good workout like I was I was surprised I was like oh my god I'm gassed out this is crazy because you're really going after mm -hmm. it with this th and you're not hitting anything, which is actually sometimes when you're moving fast is harder because nothing's absorbing your shot. So mm -hmm. since nothing's absorbing your shot, you have to kind of like slow it down yourself. You know, so that as you're throwing these punches yeah, you and you're moving control, around, because yeah. you're doing it pretty fast. You're not doing it just like you're just shadow boxing and moving in front of a mirror. You're doing it where you're trying to hit this thing that's hitting you. Mm -hmm. And so as you hit it, it registers. Like you see, like as your gloves touch it, it reacts mm -hmm. to it. So it feels... It, it, you, it, you don't hit anything, but it feels it? like, yeah, this is one of them. There's many of them, though. But so you can actually duck under punches and move around. It recognizes where you are in 3D space because the playing area is mapped out. So you map it out on the floor, and if you walk past those ropes, it would, like, give you, a, like, a, a, like, a red screen that shows you that you're, you're fucking up and you're in the wrong spot. Hmm. It's really fun. But it's good for you, for people uh, for a workout. You know, it, it gives you. It's a game that you play. That's yeah. Here you go. See you got the guy doing it. You know, I got one of Raging Bulls boxing gloves. Oh really, Jake yeah. Lamotta? One of Jake Lamotta's boxing really? gloves. Yeah. Oh yeah. wow. I got I got a picture of him signing it too. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah. When yeah. did you meet him? I when I first came to Nashville, there was a boxing match that they had. Uh, it was a celebrity boxing match, and this attorney fought this other attorney, and I thought, <laughs> good, kill both of you. <laughs> Yeah, Jake LaMotta. Wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, Doug Stanhope used to party with him. He was living in Bisbee, Arizona for a while. And Doug Stan these photos of Doug Stanhope is a brilliant comedian. Mm. He's a good friend of mine. And uh, he, he lives in Bisbee, Arizona. Did you say him. his name's Doug Stanhope? Stanhope. Oh, Stanhope. Yeah. I was going to say, what a great comedy name. Yeah, I would Doug be suspicious. Stand up. I'd be like, let me see your birth, yeah. birth right. uh, certificate, bitch. Here it is. Jake LaMotta smoking cigarettes. Oh, my with Doug God. Isn't that great? Drinking oh, he and looks tired. Wow, he's, he's 150,000 yeah. years old in this picture. Yeah. I mean, everybody in his era is really long dead. I mean, Ray Robinson, yeah. long gone yeah. from that era. The, the golden years. 
It was a great year. Yeah, it was a sure great, was. great time rather for for fighters. I mean, not not so great for their health, but Did, man, those guys fought. When I was a little kid, times. I used to have these little plastic models that you'd make. You know, like the Ravel ones, and um, you know, you'd make like cars and Mattel? planes. Uh, Ravel was Ravel. Ravel was the name of the company. Oh, like a glued together model, those yes, kind of yes, deals. Yes, yes. Oh. And I remember having this one model where it was half of a boxing ring, and it was uh, Gene Bell, and Jack Tunney? Oh, yeah. Sure, Jack Tunney. I think that's what it was. It was a real old boxing match. This is like back in the 60s when oh, I was wow. a kid doing this. And I thought it was the neatest thing because I'd never seen any models of boxers before. Yeah. You know, so. That is cool. I don't know why I thought of that, but I just I remember distinctly now seeing the two fighters and, yeah. You know, Do they even make those anymore? No, they don't like them for not. kids because they sniff the glue. Probably not, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that glue's toxic. It is. That shit's terrible for you. I always used as a kid. I I had one of those. Uh, tie you always f- used glue. Yeah, I always did a lot of models when I was a kid. Okay. I had like when I was a kid one of those Tie Fighters, those mm-hmm. uh, Star Wars things. You right, glue it right. together and X-Tize, shit. X-Tize, yeah, yeah. There was always a bunch of like cool little models, cars. He's always putting together model cars. Yeah. That was a thing. Yeah. Remember the guy that did the uh, the bug out kind of uh, hot rods? You know, the guy with the big big. The eyes and bloodshot eyes. And, oh yeah, 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 rat, yeah, yeah, rat yeah. think whatever it's yeah, called. Yeah, yeah, that was the stuff that I used to uh, make too when we were uh, making models. Was a lot of those uh, like oh god, what did they call it? The snake and the mongoose dragsters and yeah, and Boot Hill Express. They had all these crazy uh, cars that were like Mattel cars too. That was really fun. Are Games you into are cars? Now. Yeah, I am. I, yeah, I, I've got. Uh, uh, well, I, I did some foreign car mechanic work when I was younger. I, oh yeah, I, uh, I just did R and R stuff, remove and replace, and and mostly uh, on on English cars and uh, mostly Triumphs, where you had to uh, take the clutch out, and um, in order to get the clutch out of those things, you had to take the whole front. Uh, you know, down where your feet are, the whole console out of the car, and then go under the car that way. And I and I thought. Surely these guys are making me do this the hardest way possible. You know, so <laughs> what uh, kind of cars are you into now? Well, I have English stuff. My wife and I both have a Range Rover. She's got a Bentley, and I have an Aston Martin. And and uh, my daughter, um, she has a Range Rover. Justice, uh, um, I gave him an Aston, and he traded it for a Raptor. Which I think uh, a lot of people would say he's nuts, but I think here in Texas, a lot of people would probably say they understand. Those things are fucking great. Yeah, they are. Yeah, they are. But why English cars? Why are you so into English cars? Uh, well, I don't know. I used to hate English cars, and and I had Mercedes for pretty much all my driving adulthood. And I had a manager at one point. He said, "Yeah, you should just get an Aston Martin." And I said, "Really." And that was the one after Pierce Bronson, who I thought was the the worst James Bond of all. Um, <laughs> Who's did, the best? Huh? Who's the best James Bond of all? I think now, because uh, I've been able to see some living, breathing uh, James Bonds, I thought Daniel Craig was good. Thank you. I thought I thought Sean Connery was cool until I found out that he likes to smack his ex-wife around or whatever. Um, you know, everybody's got skeletons in their closet, and it's better not to even hear about it. And you know, when I I find out stuff like that, it's just so disappointing. You know, that's why they say never meet your heroes. Mm. Yeah, I think Daniel Craig was the most believable yeah. of all the James Bond. Like, I believe he was an assassin. Mm. It, that made sense to me. Looked like it. Fit the role. He wasn't so so 
artificial. Right. You know? Yeah. Well, it's also a product of the times, right? Like during the Roger Moore days, it was like more silly. Mm. Like James Bond was silly. You know, it was like uh, half of the, it was comedy. It, yeah, it was all the, the, the smarmy talk and, yeah, you know, silly one-liners. one-liners. Yeah, yeah. catchphrases. In the Daniel Craig era, it was like more a realistic action movie. Not necessarily realistic. But. That first movie, when he started off on that crane, mm-hmm. I, I was hooked. Yeah, You know what? He could have been dead right there and I would have watched the rest of the movie. I love those It was movies. so great, yeah. Well, listen, Dave, uh, I chewed up three hours of your time. Uh, I appreciate I hope you I being my here. Flight. <laughs> you, I hope so too. Uh, I appreciate you being here, though, yeah, man. You got it's it. Great to hear your story, and Thanks. great to meet you finally. You too. It's cool. So, thank you very much for everything. You're welcome. I have something I want to give you. Too. All right. Well, thank you for that too. And uh, that's it. Cool. All right. Thank you. You're Bye, welcome. everybody.